Welcome to King Size, a Stephen King podcast for obsessives by obsessives. With Matt Robinson and Simon Balkan. Constant listeners, we we are back with a very very special episode of King Size um, tonight. In the UK, it's a little bit dark and a little bit cold and rainy outside. But I'm personally feeling very very warm in my heart, and and there's two very very particular reasons for that. First one, of course, is that I'm back with my partner in crime, Mr. Simon Bolkin. Good afternoon, slash good evening, slash good morning, wherever you are listening from. This is just a warm-up act because we are joined tonight by somebody who we are both huge, huge fans of. We are joined on this special episode by the amazing Kim C., Hi, everyone. Oh, I love it here. I love King Size so much. It's so great to be with you all. We've all done separate interviews ourselves. Uh, Kim has been one of our survivor types and Sai and I have both been lucky enough to be uh, in her constant reader interviews. But this is it's it's in our heads. Well, in my head anyway, this is like a little super group. Oh, well, we're, we're, we're the backing singers, Sai here. OK, and we've, <laughs> we've got we've got the beautiful Kim C out front, uh, front and centre. So um, we're just a henchman here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too sweet. I, I like to think of us as a very efficient tricycle, um, <laughs> but I, I will happily sing lead. <laughs> Would this be a tricycle making its way slowly and desolately through the rain? <gasps> oh, good uh, one. On a dairy sidewalk. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yes, actually, a rainy day in dairy, maybe in 1958. So, Kim... For those that might not have yet heard your dulcet tones and your insights, that you know you they are in for a treat. But just be lovely. We'd love to hear um, a little bit about who you are, Kim C, and your King connection. I am a university fiction teacher, so that's my my day job. As I teach fiction, and before that all started, I was not a King fan. Um, I was in my early 20s, just finished grad school, and found full dark no stars in a magical, serendipitous moment. And reading 1922 and Big Driver, Fair Extension, and 
a good marriage, it changed my life. They changed my life. I fell in love with Stephen King. And pretty much after that, all I wanted to do when I wasn't grading essays and papers, I just wanted to read King. But I wanted to talk about King. And I wanted to talk about these novels and how brilliant the writing was. And so right around COVID time, I was like, let's go for it. Let's have a book club for one. And we'll invite whoever, whoever passes across our shore and we will discuss these books like we would in school. If I had my own Stephen King University, this is what I would teach. This is how I would break down these novels. So we started going at it and making tremendous friends along the way and falling in love with King early and late, early novels, later masterworks. And yeah, so that's our show. And I love this community and it's so great to be with people who love King. There's a real magic there. So I'm super excited to be with everyone. What, what, what a treat to have you with us because today in this episode, we are talking about Billy Summers. And just a couple of little warnings up front for our lovely listeners. Um, there will be spoilers because we are, you know, with this is kind of book that we can't hold back on. So if you haven't yet read it um, or listened to the amazing audiobook of it um, and you want to keep some surprises up your sleeve, then maybe do that before listening. Um, and also uh, some of the themes that we're talking about, uh, they uh, there are some sexual assault themes and PTSD triggers within this book. So just to let everybody know about that up front. OK, so Billy Summers. Um, for those that haven't yet read it, Billy Summers came out 2021. Um, Billy Summers is a man in a room with a gun. He's a killer for hire, the best in the business. But he'll do the job only if the target is a truly bad guy. And now Billy wants out. But first, there is one last hit. Billy is among the best snipers in the world, a decorated Iraq war vet, a Houdini when it comes to vanishing after the job is done. So what could possibly go wrong how about everything i think one of the the main things I, I took away from my reading of of billy summers was how much it um it surprised me it continued to surprise me it kept evolving as a as, as a story and every time i thought oh i see what this book is going to be about I, I could really get into this i'm into this it stopped being about that and evolved into something completely different and as soon as I thought I had it had it figured out, it became something else. I thought, oh, oh, okay. Oh, well, I'm, I'm not disappointed. I'm still enjoying this. <laughs> um, the book's going to be about this instead. Oh, okay, cool. All right. Oh, oh, it's not about that either. It's become something else. Okay, fine. All right. Well, okay. Well, I'm really enjoying this too. And that just kept happening. <clears throat> so, every say every time I thought I had it not figured out, but I thought I knew what was where it was going to be. So, for example, as soon as he's um, settling into the community, um, waiting to take his shot, I thought the whole book was going to be about him blending in this community uh, and settling in and making friends and becoming really close to these people and then having this huge moral dilemma about whether or not to take this shot. And that doesn't happen at all. Although it's still really sweet, all the stuff that happens with the community. 
yeah. the, you know, the, the 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 playing of the monopoly, monopoly, and the the, the backyard mm. barbecues and all that. That lovely sort of warm community neighborhood nos mm. nostalgia. It's really nice, mm. um, and it almost makes you forget who he is. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> um, I know, I know he's a killer with a code. He's you know he only kills people who are bad guys but that's really subjective now ain't it <laughs> so um and i think i think it, it's the most because i haven't yet read fairy tales so it's his most recent book that mm. i've read do you think si if he was to find himself in uh australia and it was uh, they were filming I'm a celebrity and Matt Hancock, um, our ex health secretary was to walk into view. You're saying bad guys are subjective. What, what do you think Billy would do? Uh, do you think he'd take the shot? I think he'd say, how much money you got in your pocket? Because, well, you know, uh, as the Joker says in the dark night, if you're good at doing something, never do it for free. So, He's gonna, he's gonna, you know, he's gonna ask what the price package. Yes, yes, it's a, he's a bad guy. Yes, a lot of people want him dead. But you know, everyone needs a profit. You can't live without one. So how, how much am you gonna pay me? Because <laughs> isn't that, isn't that the thing? His code at the end of the day mm. is his code that demands that he goes and does what he then does. Mm. He should. He's he's given. He shortchanged, yeah, by the, by the people who, who who promised to pay him, and regardless yeah. of how good or bad they are, if they'd have just paid him, they wouldn't have had a problem. Yes, I don't think because he mm. wouldn't have investigated who it was who set him up. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, I reckon that until until he has this sort of fateful meeting, um. He's got a code, but I think it's debatable as whether or not he's got a conscience. Mm. Mm. And I'm sort of made up my mind about that. I'm just sort of throwing that out there. Does Billy, before his meeting with Alice, really have a conscience or does he just have a strict code that he adheres to? Yes. So so code code or conscience for, for, for you, Kim, how did how did Billy, uh, Billy himself land for you? Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited. So firstly, I must extend a quick, huge thank you because on the underrated Stephen King podcast, we focus on like the books and shadows and we don't really do um, the newer King books, but I'm so glad I read this one. It's such a game changer. So for me, Billy, I definitely feel there is a conscience there. I just don't know if he's had to use it in a while due to the code. I think that the code is something very ingrained that's grown over time since his military experience. But I think with this fantastical hand of fate where the character of Alice comes in, suddenly a different side of him is awakened. Uh, the humanity that I don't know he's encountered in a moment. Mm. But I also feel not only Alice, but as Simon spoke of, the community. He's somebody's neighbor, and the neighbor children like him and draw him pictures. And so I think there's a lot of crust that's getting knocked off 
-hmm. of this human loving soul that's maybe been buried for a long time i think it's worth it's worth noting that actually it seems to me the only reason that he saves alice in the first place is kind of self-preservation yeah he doesn't do it by virtue of there's somebody out there that is in real peril and i should help them yeah. there's there's somebody out there in real peril if and if i don't do something i'm going to get caught Yes, yeah. Not quite possibly, because the police are going to start doing door-to-door -door searches and I can't have that. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost something in that uh, that pivotal moment, moment, that turning point in the book where we meet Alice, that in the way that King describes Billy bringing Alice in, despite the horrors, the physical comedy of what Billy is doing in his rush to get rid of this evidence, and he's got splinters in his feet and he's pants keep pulling down and he's just oh my god i just need to get out of sight so yeah it's that self-preservation that drives him um because his world is about to get turned upside down and it's that point that then becomes for me something very different you know billy who is a survivor of abuse he's a survivor of a horrific home situation and he's, you know, been put in horrific situations from a very young age, having to become an adult before his time. And Alice, obviously, a victim of abuse, and they pull towards each other. There's this gravitational pull almost between the two of them um, that absolutely then suddenly we shift on this journey of Billy, the search for who he is. And is he a good guy or a bad guy and i i love the ambiguity of it you know i think that's the thing that breaks my heart about this novel is even at the end billy's like look i i'm not a good guy alice you get away from me bucky bucky knows i'm not a good guy he's told you do not take me down do not take alice down with you um he's i guess he, an, an anti-hero kim how did you describe billy you described him beautifully in your episode um his qualities Yes, he is a antagonist. Definitely. This guy is the anti-hero who we fall in love with because we fall in love with his moral code, despite the fact that he is killing people. He is an assassin, but we don't fault him for it because King creates a Byronic hero. That's his archetype. He's the Byronic hero. They are alluring. They're a little seductive. There's something very attractive about them. They're in control. Mm -hmm. There's, there's, they're skilled. They're wealthy. There's something very attractive about them, and so we're drawn to that in in Billy. Um, just the anti-hero, but he's uh, stemming from all those Lord Byron characteristics that are super attractive to readers, male and female. There's something men sort of really enjoy the characteristics of this man. He's independent, he's in control. Yeah. And ladies like myself get a little crushed because <laughs> <laughs> there's, yeah. there's something there. He's heroic, he defends mm -hmm. um, the victimized, he's yeah. moral in his own way, he's kind, 
in moments that are unexpected. So mm-hmm. there's, oh man, Billy's tremendous. He's just such a mixed bag of awesome. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> bag of awesome. <laughs> That's just spot on. And amazing hearing you, I don't know about you, Sai, but hearing you describe Billy so powerfully there, Kim, in my head, I hear Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. I really, 100%. you know, just, you know, all of those descriptive, um, all of those descriptions of him, I'm hearing, yeah, that could be applied to Bruce Wayne, who's born of tragedy, you know, beautiful circumstances, but then ripped away and born through that tragedy. On that on that note, mm. um, it just seems like the time to put this in very briefly. I would like to say um, how sorry I was to hear of the, the passing of the actor Kevin Conroy, who died <gasps> at the age of 66. Um, which is absolutely no age at all. He will be known to many people as the voice of Bruce Wayne and Batman in the animated series and a number of the um, computer games and um, animated um, films. Um, And he's an absolutely perfect casting. Andrea Romano, who cast a lot of these um, films and shows, did wonderful, wonderful casting. And um, Kevin Conroy was just fantastic um, Mm -hmm. vocally did exactly the same job that Christopher Reeve did with Superman in having two very distinct but perfectly fit personas. And in fact, he went to college with Christopher Reeve and was in fact the roommate of Robin Williams. So RIP Kevin Conroy. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Simon, because the Batman is very near and dear to my heart. I'm a huge DC fan. I have two brothers, so I didn't really have a choice. But <laughs> the <laughs> the animated series of Batman, that was my entire childhood of coming home from school, making sure my brothers, I was just taking care of my brothers till my parents got home, and we would watch Batman animated series. And Kevin Conroy is batman for me as just childhood nostalgia and he's the reason i love batman and bruce wayne so much today so r.i.p indeed it's funny isn't it that that anti-hero that has is always so attractive and has that pull of both cross-gender cross you know it's that anti-hero king says of billy summers um there are always jobs that go wrong but you always hope the guy at the center of it who has a good heart will get out of the job. I think all of us like to play with the idea of what we would do in that circumstance. We all like to take our imaginations for a little walk and pretend for a while that we're on the dark side of the law. Billy Summers really isn't much different from some of my more supernatural books in the sense that you want the reader to go someplace they don't go in their ordinary life. Well, that's the point. That's one of the functions of art, isn't it? Yeah. Of any of any art form, it sort of invites the um, the audience to come into this dark world and sort of live in this dark world for a while, and then come out of it having done whatever it is that you did in that world, and yet have no consequences in in the real world. It's about, and I think good art will do this, whatever form it takes, it will allow you to expand your experience of yourself. Mm. Mm. So what would I be like if I were a hired killer? What would that feel like? Mm. 
If only there was somebody out there who'd written an incredibly engaging novel that could allow me <laughs> to go on some sort of journey. There's got to be one out there somewhere. Maybe one day we'll find it, Kim, for you, of uh, getting the sense it was a really visceral read as well, right? Oh, my goodness, yes. I was very emotional from this book, and it was so well done and like Simon said, just completely evolving into something else the entire time. But the scene in particular is where Billy, the book is, the plot is really changing. And yeah. Billy is in a really tight spot where he's got everything under control. And the reader's like, he's got this. He's got this. He's going to get away. It's going to be okay. And then, and then this, sir, this woman who's in danger, who's in peril, is literally dumped on his doorstep and so he makes this choice and at the time and my first time reading it i was like oh no oh no billy don't go outside do not no you can't you can't and that's horrible because i want i want him to be that hero and of course we want him to do the right thing but we know that when he opens that door all is lost yeah and so that's a huge shift for the reader and that's a huge decision we have to make with ourselves because we want him to be okay because at this point in the book we're so enamored with this guy's cool he's in control he's yeah. talented yeah. he's pulling fast ones left and right he's gonna win this guy's gonna win <laughs> yeah right and but then we we know okay as long as he's hunkering down he's got this just a couple more weeks yeah. we're yeah. in it and then this the plot shifts and the hand of fate deals out this emergency situation and he makes <laughs> a choice. He <laughs> makes a choice and at first I was like, oh God, no, just just call the cops. Let somebody else pick her up. Like, just call somebody. They don't, you can figure it out or, you know, just go <laughs> yeah. see, just turn her on her side and then go back in. Like, <laughs> I was trying to rationalize it so much. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it was wonderful once you are gelling with his choice you're like okay we're going down this road together you're gonna help this girl you have now opened the door for yourself to be a target billy so we're in this together i'm with you whatever comes you're gonna get caught okay um but then we as the novel continues and the plot completely changes and we get this magic happening between these two characters we're so glad that he he at his core was a good person that at his core he had roots of being a humane individual who remembered his oath in the marines and he just was like no i'm stepping in and i'm doing the right thing even though i am sacrificing my own safety and so that's a huge moment that's a huge moment for the reader and for billy mm -hmm. yeah it's, it's fascinating i'm not sure he i'd say i'm not sure he has so much of a choice I'm sure I think he's either hardwired to take action and do something um, regardless of whether or not it's the right thing to do. Because, as I say, I don't think he, he can leave her there. If that's it, true. It's, and he can't just turn her over and, wa and walk away either, because that's that, that sort of having interfering with it. He does one of two things. He either ignores it completely or he he does what he does and he goes out into the rain and he, and he brings her in to the basement. And I don't think he can, he, he can stop himself um, 
from doing that. Mm-hmm. I think in some way he's hardwired to do it. And I'm not sure because he's he's decent. I'd like to believe that that's the case, that down mm-hmm. there, right, you know, right at the bottom of all that sort of murder is his fundamental humanity. And I'm, I'm, I know it's there, yeah. but I think in that moment, it seems to me what he's what he's weighing up is more is more self self preservation and the chances of him getting caught and the chances of him getting caught are much lower if he helps her but i also think i'm not sure it, it, it's fate so much as it is a nice karmic twist because instead of making making victims throughout his life one way or another he ha- he now has to care for one it's it's almost because again I I get real shades of of Dexter of course you know the yes. code you know yeah. just killing bad guys and Dexter as played by you know the incredible Michael C Hall is you just you root for him even though sometimes when he is covering his tracks and the coldness the calculated moments Dexter in peril is it there's there's a comic genius to the portrayal of it and you're also he's he's you know the 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 thread is unraveling right and it often he has to do more and more and more to cover up the mess and he gets away with things by the finest finest margins throughout so many of those uh seasons and i think that's it i got this sense here of he's initially driven by i need to clean up this mess i need to you know straight into action but it is that lovely then catalyst that starts us you know the awakening of of billy i think you know um as you say because he has to then care for someone they and he's healing and then she is healing as well and and they have this perfect space to be able to do that and i love the time that they're that alice is convalescing I love the languidity of it, you know, the day spent watering the plants and just spending time together and watching Netflix and that that's not rushed. And interestingly enough, King spoke about that moment where Billy is hiding out was the was the first vision he had for the novel. Mm-hmm. He said, with Billy Summers, the first thing for me was this. I saw a man in a basement apartment looking out a window like a periscope and seeing feet go by on the sidewalk. I played with that for a while. What's this guy doing there? Why is he there? What does it all mean? Oh, love it. And up through the periscope, suddenly, you know, that tension of you keep thinking the van is going to come by. And I'm th- I, mm. I, I, that moment ago, I think mm. he's five blocks clear. But he's not still in the clear because he's still seen the van with Dana in trawling along. And then that starts to ease a little bit. And then suddenly we're thrown into Alice's and then Billy's predicament. Um, I was fascinated by the fact that tension and friction is constantly there. But there's almost a languidity as well with, with the novel. A hundred percent. I could not agree more, especially once once the novel shifts when Alice comes in, it's like a different story. We're in a different ball game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But just stepping back for a minute, those those first you know couple of hundred pages before we meet um, Alice uh, and that huge turning point, as you said, Sai, right at the beginning, you know, like many, we think the novel's one thing, and we think, oh, this is what it's going to be about. Then it turns into something else, and yeah, those that first chunk almost of the novel. Just talk to me both about how what what that novel held for you, that first section, you know, as Billy's getting ready and gearing up for the hit. 
Well, for the first, that first section, mm. um, I was convinced that the whole of the book, the whole of the book would be a much, a much more extended examination of writing. Specifically, you know, specifically that, that would be its, its main theme. And of course it goes on throughout the book, mm -hmm. but there are other, because the other events that, that take place in it, um, you've got other themes going on as well. But I really thought that writing was going to be it. It would be a, be a much, mm -hmm. um, a much, much, much deeper reflection on um, the, the writer sort of pressed into service. So it, it, because he's, he's sort of an unwilling writer isn't he? He's a bit like Paul Sheldon in that respect. I mean, I know, I know his audience isn't quite as uh, brutal, but he's, he's, still having, he's still having to write for an audience because he's having to write yeah. as his dumb self because he's convinced that other people will be reading his laptop. So he thinks, well, I'd better write as my dumb self or a they'll see behind the mask yeah see behind the mask then... so it's layers there isn't it it's mask behind the mask behind the mask mm. Mm. yeah exactly um and he's got to be aware of that all the time yeah so one, i mean one of the things that um that came up quite quite early in the um in the writing um was when he's talking to some of his colleagues from the office outside um, and one of the, um, well, not colleagues, actually, some of the people that work in the offices down, down the hall, I should say, um, they say, oh, go on, tell, tell me what it's about. Go on, go on, t tell us what, what, what it's about. And he mm -hmm. says, no, 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 I can't. Um, and they say, oh, go on, what, go on, tell us what it's about. Even if I signed an NDA, um, would you, would you tell me? And he said, no, I can't, I can't, I can't tell you what's, what it's about. And, and, and the guy says, that's strange. I thought that, that, you know, writers loved to talk about their writing. And Billy says, people who talk about writing probably don't do much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I loved that. That's such a zinger. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was great. That jumped out at me as well. Just bang. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. It's the same with actors. If they're talking about it, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. chances are pretty good they're not doing that much of it. There's so much in that, in the, you say, those opening two pages that is all about... Um, different you know genres and and and, and about writing mm -hmm. and i mean the, the the authors that are um are name checked and there's 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 a good long list of them yeah although i was a little dis disturbed well, not disturbed just slightly concerned perhaps to find out that um billy's favorite writer is thomas hardy that was terrible yeah big fan yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah. Hardy? billy have you ever read I and mean, you must have read surely but really <laughs> oh don't read any thomas hardy if you're feeling slightly depressed because oh, i swear it'll send, you, it'll send you straight off the cliff it's true <laughs> yeah where, where, where do you stand on on hardy kim oh god okay so tess of d'urberville that's the one i read yeah. Um, and survived rather. I survived Tess of Durberville. <laughs> um, God, that was just so heart wrenching, but in a really dismal way. In like, <laughs> I'm being tortured by this story, and there's no light. Like, there's this is just this lovely woman having tragedy after tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and then death. Awesome. Thanks, Tom. Great. <laughs> So he he is a very dismal fellow. I don't know much about his biography, mm. but I'm assuming it wasn't very sunny because he, mm. like Simon said, will just take you right off the cliff. 
He's from my <laughs> corner of the world originally. Thomas Thomas Hardy is uh, he wrote about Wessex as you doubtless know. And Wessex was the sort of pen name for the county of Dorset, which where I spent most of mm. my my childhood and adolescence. Um, and it's a beautiful county. It's you know lush green rural fields, you know rolling hills and countryside pubs. But we meet Billy, don't we? He's that the dumb self, you know. So already right from the beginning, when we meet Billy. He's hiding behind this mask that he's created so successfully that, you know, so Nick Majerian and all the gangsters just think, oh, yeah, you, you're, you know, we got your number. He's a great shot. But he's not the smartest cookie. And, you know, so they try to play him. So already he's hiding behind that mask. And then when he takes on the role of being the writer, he hides yet even deeper. But that's actually his way in, isn't it? To start to tell his story, his heartbreaking story of, of, of his childhood and his abuse and his time uh, as a sniper. Um, and again, I love the fact that King's using, you know, the power of writing as the way in and the power of being an author into the way into his main um, anti-hero protagonist. Um, and, and for me, this was really, really a love letter to the power of fiction, um, especially as the novel progresses. But it was almost for me, I got this sense of Stephen King being looking back at his career, looking back at his craft. I love it. He even said himself, there are books that I've written where writing is seen as a sort of a toxic thing. And there are only a couple Misery is one and Billy Summers is another where it talks about writing as salvation. You don't have to be a professional writer to know that's the case. Sometimes it's a doorway into your own feelings and your own view of the world. That idea of writing as salvation. And again, Sai, you mentioned about Annie Wilkes, you know, because again, when we think of King and his authors, uh, you know, as characters, obviously Paul Sheldon and Misery come straight to top of mind. Interesting how he puts those two as almost bedfellows, writing as a power to save your life. He once watched an interview with Tim O'Brien on YouTube. O'Brien was talking about the things they carried. He said that fiction wasn't the truth. It was the way to the truth. So beautiful. Yes, I I, I completely agree. And I say for me, and I, I may have mentioned this before, but it absolutely bears repeating. It's one of the main difference between artists and politicians. Artists use lies to tell the truth, and politicians use the truth to tell lies. Yeah. Ooh, I need that framed, say. Good evening, uh, Prime Minister and Matt Hancock. <laughs> well, Prime Minister for this week, we'll have to do another one of these next Well, exactly, week. yes, it's true. By the time this goes out, uh, Rishi who? <laughs> who was he? Yeah. In politician. Fact, yeah. But uh, luckily, I mean, the good thing is, Kim, obviously over in the States, all the things with your politicians, they're all, it's all nice and calm there, isn't it? There's, oh, yeah. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we look over an envy and go, oh, it's all blimey. What is going on, people? Chaos. <laughs> As again, so, thank God for the power of fiction to be able to lose ourselves in. And Kim, that um, the Tim O'Brien, the things that they carried, um, you 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 spoke beautifully uh, about that book and about the impact it's had on you know uh, telling the, the story of of veterans and it, it it casts a beautiful shadow over Billy Summers, doesn't it? 
Oh my goodness, it does. And I really encourage readers out there. It's not very long of a book, but if you're able to get the audio book, Brian Cranston reads it. It's absolutely compelling. It's just beyond words amazing. And these interconnected stories are very autobiographical. Tim O'Brien was a young man in Vietnam. He lived this and these are people that he knew that died in that jungle. And so what I love so much about King bringing this book into the story is how we we look at war from loss and from these men out and, and women who who lost themselves and their friends. And so what's so brilliant about Billy Summers is he gets this assignment to pretend to be a writer, right? And so He's always disguised his intelligence to sort of stay a step ahead of his employers. And so he starts pretending, telling that lie of, I'm just pretending to be a writer. But what starts to happen is he, he, he discovers that as he lets that guard down and gets those private moments where he doesn't have to play the game, he doesn't have to be one step ahead, he could actually breathe for a second he is connecting to the past and writing about what happened and seeing it from a different perspective and finding all those pain points and mm. the things they carried is is basically that it's going back to vietnam mm. in the jungle in the rain in the mud with these boys who did not want to be there who didn't know what they signed up for and how in the end it was all about living for each other trying to get home but what's so terrible about Vietnam, and I hate that war so much. Like, they're just, I, there's a lot of wars that we can't, I mean, they're all terrible. They're all terrible. But there's something really sinister about Vietnam because this, the dark, dark jungle and these young men who were mostly on drugs and just wanted, they have no idea what they're out there. There's no just cause. It's just terrible, terrible, terrible. So it's like, how do you reconcile that when you get home? You know, how does yeah. Billy reconcile the life that he's, led the cards he's been dealt how does he reconcile it just one word at a time one memory at a time and there's such power and beauty in this book and i'm i'm just astonished i'm astonished what king did here because this is just a story about an assassin that my dad and and he was like this is really good it's a crime one i was like okay dad all right i'll put it on the back of the list and then i finally get there and i get to the end and i can't stop crying i can't stop crying you guys i could not mm -hmm. i lost it i could not stop crying because he subtly just gets you right in the heart he grabs you by the throat and says this is what this story is really about mm. well, there's something desperately poignant as you say about about billy because i think from a certain point of view the war for him never ended oh yeah. i love that yeah because you know he was a um an, uh, he fought in iraq and then he came home and he continued to be a killer yep. yeah um, and he, I don't think it was really until he started to write about it, it's almost by default, that he he began to really um, to process a lot of that and to start sort of some some kind of therapy because he hadn't done it up and up yeah. until this this point, and he's he's still a killer. That's that's what he does. That in one form or another, that's been his professional life and his person i mean he he was forced to kill when he was a child yes yep. of course. yes 
Yeah, yeah. his total identity. Yeah. Yeah. Been people making him kill, <laughs> be it, you know, the stepfather, the the abusive boyfriend that forces him to kill. Mm. To the army saying, This is what you need to do. To Nick saying, This is what you do. You know, I, I get this sense of this softness that's just been hardened and hardened. And we often speak, Si, don't we, about, you know, especially this year, looking at Derry very closely about some of these kids never stood, never stood a chance because they've had their childhood ripped away from them. And the poignancy of the flashbacks with Billy telling his story about, you know, having to take on um, the role of killer at such a young age, he never stood a chance. Of course, it started when, when he was a child and he was thrown into that kill or be killed. Yeah situation yeah and it might sound obvious i hope it certainly doesn't sound trite but evil begets evil mm. and totally in you know in, in in one form or another humanity needs that the repetition the endless repetition of that until it finally absorbs the fact the only thing that will come from evil is more of the same one of the things I heard um, an interviewer talking about Stephen to Stephen King about about this book, you know, he he the view, interview and he and he said, "Ah, oh, Stephen King, you've done horror, you've done suspense, you've done sci-fi, you've done fantasy. When are you going to do romance?" And I'm like, oh, "Did you read this book? <laughs> <Are> you... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before you gave the interview, did you even, you know, maybe give it a shifty? Because um... for shame, shame." Holy moly. And, and if not, had you read 112263, Wizard yes. and Glass, uh, Christine? Uh, romance runs through most of his books. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, well, in some ways, this book has a lot in common with 112263. Yes, yes. absolutely. Yes, it does. And I, Kim, when we spoke, I was like, I, I, I know you're going to love it. I just. <laughs> <laughs> you were dead right. You were dead right, Matt. Like. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I could think that I was like, what could ever be better than 112263? And then he wrote Billy Summers. Um, and I agree. I think, you know, they are those perfect bedfellows when it comes to especially the romance part. Um, but just that interesting thing of we were speaking about writing and the catharsis of writing. But also in this book, King shows how bloody hard it is. And using that terminology from the things that they carried, you know, where King writes, writing is also a kind of war, one you fight with yourself. The story is what you carry. And every time you add to it, it gets heavier. All over the world, there are half-finished books, memoirs, poetry, novels, surefire plans for getting thin or getting rich in desk drawers because the work got too heavy for the people trying to carry it and they put it down and for me this is absolutely king being my read on it autobiographical about the, the craft of writing and what he's dedicated his life to the heaviness of it the weight the light that it can be but when those words don't come you know, it's it's not an easy road. Anyone who's tried to write a book will say that, you know, this isn't just, you know, yeah, great. You know, this is hard. The things that they carry. Um, and, you know, he spoke in an interview around the Billy Summers time 
about, he said, usually I work on a book every day. It's like a religion to me. But I got to a point in the stand where I just put it aside and I said, I don't think I can finish this. It killed me because I had like 450 single spaced pages. You don't want to think of all that work going to waste a busted book. I went on a lot of long walks and I remembered something that Raymond Chandler said. He said, when when you don't know what to do next, bring on the man with the gun. <laughs> and I thought, well, what if someone blows all these people up and I'm left with a bunch <laughs> of characters that's manageable? So that's what I did with that one. But yeah, it gets heavy. And this book for me is, is uh, as much about writing as on writing was. Could not agree more. And there were many moments in that book, that, that particular quote that just sliced me right open. Uh, I work with, with writers all day long, every yeah. day, day in, day out. I love it. And I understand the weight of th that work, of creative yeah. work. And I have that very similar in my own life, unfinished projects, things that got too heavy, but I have to put all that aside and then motivate people to keep going in my in my teaching career. And so I, <laughs> I've i talked to the dean because I'm like, I, I need a whole semester to teach this novel. <laughs> and he's like, what novel? And I was like, it's a Stephen King novel. He's like, absolutely not. And I was like, just hear me oh. out, just hear me out. I'm gonna do this, you're gonna love it. So I'm actually gonna find a way to take excerpts of this story and see if I can pull it into the curriculum because the power the message of Billy Summers' journey into the writing catharsis, the creative work, the weight of it, the perseverance, it's brilliant. It is brilliant and so meaningful. And it's just amazing how we went from a story about an assassin, one last job, really sort of grit and crime, and it morphs into this beautiful reflection on the art of fiction. I understand this weight that he speaks of probably mm. will never be to the extent that he speaks of, but I think it's with anybody who's tried to do a creative work, a painting, a song, a film, it, it starts to crush the soul. And mm. how do you, some people give up and it's okay. It's okay to let that weight off. It's all right. It's mm. all right. You don't have to finish, especially if it's, you know, impacting your mental health and destroying your soul. Yeah. But uh, there are those who will encourage you to keep going, to pick up the weight, to keep going. Absolutely. My God, I would love to see you be able to teach this book, Kim, and talk about this book with your students, because I think to show your dean the quality, not only of the ode to writing and a love letter to writing, but the actual quality of the writing, the prose within this book, Kim, just from, you know, with your academic hat on here, when you're looking at this as a piece of writing and prose, what's your, what's your reflections? Oh my goodness, it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And it is as rich and as deep and as good and as beautiful as any literary author that is being preached. And when we get to that higher academic level, it's a lot of the craftsmen who are well known for the dense stuff right are very depressed alcoholics our hemingways our flannery o'connor our um 
oh my gosh, you you know, you know the all all the classic novelists, yeah. and it's just dense and it's hard. And I'm like, you, King has been so marginalized by the academic community, and a few of us instructors out there are like, why? Why? When he has so much to teach people, he has so much to to show in terms of how to do this, how to craft fiction, how to tell this story. So the prose within this novel is stunning. It's stunning. It just made me want to jump off my couch and just, there were many moments where I've just highlighted, I've circled, I've bookmarked. I'm like, God, this is stunning. This is absolutely glorious. This man is, it's just getting better. He is 75 years old and it's just getting better. And if anything, that encourages my students even more when I say this guy, look at this, look at this. You do not have to be a spring chicken to write beautiful things. You can use all of that life and years and wisdom and time and you're going to bring magic out in your work. You will. I love that point, Kim, and it speaks almost to, you know, again, Sai, we were talking earlier, you know, you were mentioning earlier about the arts and creativity. It's, it gives a longer lifespan, doesn't it? Again, as a writer, uh, as an actor, as a musician, there's more space within it. There's more years than the cruelty of, say, uh, sport, you know, where to be a top athlete, a top mm. footballer, top tennis player you know, it's cut cruelly short when, you know, you can't hit that level, even, you know, like in your 30s, you know. Whereas, as you say, with this book, as he gets older, certainly for my money, especially with this novel, he seems to be getting better and better. Um, and yeah, a acting speaks to that as well, doesn't it, Sai? You know, it's... Uh... Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Morgan Freeman didn't get a <laughs> Any kind of break till he was in his forties. Samuel L. Jackson was kind yeah. of a washed-up heroin addict when yeah. he was in his forties as well. Um, like you, I think there are, there are two groups of people I tend to I, I tend to sympathise or perhaps feel a little sorry for. One, as you say, a professional athlete, because for the most part, depending on the sport, but for the most part, your career is over by your mid mid thirties. If you're mm. still in it when you're when you hit forty, you're at, you're in a very very small percentage. Yeah. And I also feel a little sorry for any anybody that gets fame and fortune particularly as an actor when they're young because it can be quite the poisoned chalice there's one of my one of my favorite plays of all time is called comedians written in the 70s by an author called uh, trevor griffiths and it's about a group of um working class blokes who go to be um, who go to learn how to do stand-up comedy from an old musical comic and one of them says I want to be famous. I want to be rich and famous. What's wrong with that? And the teacher says, ah, oh, more than you want to be good. And the teacher <laughs> says, what's wrong with being all three? The teacher says, nothing. So long as you're good first, because you'll never be good later. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and it's, it's, it amazes me, like you, that Stephen King isn't taught more widely. Because here yeah. is the, um, the perfect role model for somebody who did not write to be rich and famous. Yeah. He yeah. wrote because he couldn't not do it. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Here's a man who threw the first nine pages of his first novel in the bin for, for a number of reasons, um, and then Tabitha fished them out and said, you should keep going with this. Oh, all right then. And that was his first damn novel. Mm. And he, as he said, <laughs> as he, you know, as we've said in the past, I had a nail in the wall 
that I put all the rejection slips on. And eventually the damn thing fell off. What did I do? <laughs> I got a bigger nail. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and, and it, for me, it's something that, you know, it distinguishes the, somebody that, that's just doing it for the money, nothing wrong with that, and somebody who does it because they can't not do it. And anyway, did I tell you my, my apocryphal Prince story? You, you, you remember you remember Prince. You remember the, the American singer, writer, musician Prince. Of course. When when he died, again, very, very young, um, his studio looked into his back catalogue to see how much music he'd recorded, but for reasons X, Y, and Z had never released because he wasn't happy with it or he was just on the way to something else. It was all kind of bits and pieces, but yeah, there was yeah. a lot of it there. There was so much material in his back catalogue that if they'd wanted to, they could have released an album a year for the next 90 years. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. There was tons of it. He, Like Stephen King, whatever your discipline is, he couldn't not do it. It was just in his in his DNA. And, he, and he's the, you know, he's the archetype for somebody who should not give up. Even even if it, you know, you say sometimes you have to put that that weight down for a while. For a while. He put yeah. the weight of 11, 16. 112263 down for a yeah. while. Yeah, he admits that. And he was mm. absolutely right. And then he picks it back up and we've got the novel that we got. Yeah. But he didn't stop writing. Mm. No. Yep. So mm. um yeah. Okay. The Jedi Code teaches this. <laughs> All right. When Luke goes to train to be a Jedi with Yoda, he Yoda you know, initially t turns him down. He says, I, I, I can't, I can't teach this, this one. All, I've watched him for a long time and all his mind is, is mm. adventure and excitement and what's down the road. Never his mind on where he was, what he was doing. Just put one damn foot in front of the other. <laughs> keep your attention in the here and now where it belongs. Focus on the task in hand. And don't worry about what's down the line, because what's down the line is coming anyway. So enjoy the steps, enjoy the doing of yeah, it. And if you yeah. don't enjoy the doing of it, find something else to do. Preach. Let's march on Parliament. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, listen, I, I think I think he might be Prime Minister next week. I mean, I you, you get my you get my vote on that impassioned speech, my friend. It's uh... I want them to make the cat the Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Smart a lot smarter than any of the candidates we've had in recent years. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe the Prime Minister's like six dinner Sid just thinks, well, I'll move around and go to each place. And the cat's the one that's <laughs> staying there going, right. The cat would offer more stability and make more sense and have more empathy. <laughs> uh, no doubt about it. No one would argue with the cat. <laughs> Has, I do have a quick question about that. Um, I've never, I've been alive over three decades, but I've never seen a Prime Minister gone in six weeks. Is that... Yeah. Has that so ever happened to you guys before? It, it was the fastest one. And we have um, one of the tabloid newspapers had a competition that was running that was seeing if a cabbage <laughs> could, could last longer than that current prime minister. Oh, my God. Um, so the cabbage had a blonde wig adorned on it and glasses. And they're like, right, let's see how long the cabbage lasts or Liz Truss. And the cabbage one. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, so cheeky and hilarious. Absolutely, Love it. But absolutely true. So, yeah, you're getting my vote, Si, on the back of that. Because, again, and I think it's what the best Beatle said, right? George Harrison, obviously, is the best Beatle. And he said, very simply, be here now. Yes. Be oh, so here good. now. That was yeah. his whole philosophy. And um, that absolutely echoes to to, to that point. Um but I think I'm interested to know if you if you guys think what your thoughts are here because for me the writing, it's his punchiest prose mm. that he has done in that 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 I can remember, and I wonder if part of that is through you know we love him on Twitter right whether he stays there or not quite rightly as he said to Elon Musk what I have to pay you should be paying me mm. to be on there so. But, you know, he is used to being the master of the pithy, you know, kind of 140 characters. And it's his sentences in this book. They're short, they're sharp, they're muscular. A couple of examples that I just loved. At one moment where a couple of the characters are talking, Billy and someone else. That Trump guy, huh? That Trump guy, yeah. That's it. Genius. <laughs> There's just Genius. a rhythm to it. it. It's like a play, you know? <laughs> It doesn't need to be overwritten. It's just that. And That's I a good I subtext. Say... Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. Some lo- and some lovely, you know, look, he is a man of his time and be here now. And so, of course, you are going to get, you know, Trump seeping through this book. And I know that that is a turn off for a lot of people that, that, you know, and I've read criticisms of readers just going, look, when did King get so political? King's always been political, right? Always. He's always, always been a political writer. You go right back to, you know, look at the dead zone. And, mm. you know, it's always been political. Vietnam has always, he's been a, a writer of wars and a chronicler of wars. So he's always been political, you know. But in this book, for me, I love the fact that it feels so of its time. You know, you've got Trump there, you've got MAGA, you've got COVID. I know he shifted it back a year, but, then, you know, because of the nature of the story. But you've got the fact of these characters going, little did they know, you know, in six months, all the cruise ships would be shut, all the cinemas would be shut. This sense of the stand about to happen just in the future. It's a novel of its time and the prose reflects it, I think. You're talking about people wearing wearing masks. Like, well, yeah. Well, at one point, a Melania Trump mask makes an appearance, doesn't it? It does. It does. In, a literal in, mask. It does. A literal mask. A Melania Trump mask in conjunction with... what? What's the piece of kitchen uh, utensils that are being carried, Kim? A hand mixer. It's oh, a- my God. And not an immersion blender. <laughs> so, please, just for... I mean... Everyone, you got to listen to Kim's episode on Billy because <laughs> it's brilliant. But it ends with this wonderful discussion about the kitchen utensils that are used when Billy is the avenging angel, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I uh, I just had to say something, Matt, in my episode because I went on the wiki, the wiki to see, you know, the distillation. And somebody wrote, uh, takes revenge with an immersion blender. And I was like, oh, my God. Holy hell, no, no. So the kitchen appliances, uh, we need to define them a little better for <laughs> for future discussions, I think. Yes, as you said, an immersion that has blades, blades. right? Blades. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Have either of you very familiar with Gilbert and Sullivan? Early 20th century satirists. 
Okay. Um, so they produced a series of operettas. And that sequence where Billy plays the Avenging Angel reminds me of, of, of one of their songs um, from the Mikado. And, um, okay, this was requested earlier, folks, so don't go blaming this on me. Um, one of the characters in the Mikado, completely by accident, becomes the Lord High Executioner. And he's not entirely sure how to go about his job, um, if memory serves with the plot. And one of his one of the lines from uh, from his songs goes like this: "My object all sublime, I shall achieve in time to let the punishment fit the crime, the punishment fit the crime, and make each prisoner pent unwillingly represent a source of innocent merriment, of innocent merriment." Let Bravo! The, let the punishment fit the crime. <laughs> Excellent. I think Billy does a really good job of that. He doesn't. 100%. He doesn't kill them flat out. He doesn't, you know, um, cut a hand off or anything like that. He lets the punishment fit the crime. Oh. It's perfect. Oh, it's it's, it's brilliant. <laughs> and again, beautiful round of applause. I there think we need to get your singing in every episode now. That it's that's going to be in the rider. That's going to be a staple. I thought you wanted to increase the listenership, not reduce the <laughs> With those dulcet pipes, my friend. Yeah, the singing yeah. Prime Minister, okay, come on. Yeah. I, I, besides which, I, I can't do it next week. I think it's your turn next week. I'm the week after. <laughs> Every, everyone can't. in the country is going to get a go at this, right? I can't compete with that, my friend. <laughs> Um, but yeah, absolutely. There's such a brilliant bit of payback there. Um, I'm interested to know because I've had heard some thought opinions that go, why should Billy be the avenging angel here? You know, hang on, Alice isn't, you know, is she too much of a damsel in distress at this point? You know, why does she, why does Billy have to go and take the revenge? Uh, why don't we get Alice there with Billy, but her with the hand blender? Just from your point of view, Kim, did, did that strike any uh, off chords or not for you in that moment? No, that's a fascinating question, though. Mm. And my take on it is I felt Billy concerning Alice might have assumed she's experienced enough. She's yeah. suffered enough. And she doesn't need the additional trauma and guilt because she even um, when Billy tells Alice, he's like, I'm going to do this. And she says, please don't kill them. Right. So yes. she's so mm, she has first a heart. reaction, isn't it? That's it is. Very first, yeah. Beautiful spot. She's, first reaction. Yeah. She's like, please mm. don't kill them. I don't want that. It's that weight, the weight of the soul of, of these choices you make. Like, even mm. though someone has victimized you and done harm, you the the vengeance it, it's yeah. you're you're not going to be set free from that you're going to have the guilt and you're going to especially if you don't have the sort of tainting that billy has billy mm. has experienced death from a very young age so when that scene happens when he's like i'm gonna go they they're bad people and they're gonna pay a, a high price yeah. she says please don't kill them and in my reading i was like this is great he's protecting her from trauma or additional guilt or mm. stuff she doesn't need and i loved that scene it really reminded me of stieg larson um the girl with the dragon tattoo i really yes. it felt like a little echo from there and it's great when lisbeth gets the revenge but lisbeth 
didn't really have anybody. She had Michael, but he's like the journalist and he's he's not going to do that for her. And he's too self-obsessed, right? Absolutely. So it's great when Lisbeth does it and it's righteous and it's but Lisbeth's very strong and she's yeah. really pissed off. And I feel Alice wasn't in the frame to do that. She was very surprised and taken back by it. Like, are you sure? Really? You don't yeah. have to do that for me. Like, you don't have to. We, You could tell she's one of those victims. It's like, I just want it to go away. I just want this to be over. I don't want to think about it. It's happened. I just want to live my life and piece everything back together in whatever shambles I can. And yeah. he's like, no, no, the the justice is a coming and it's going to be me and it's going to be a dish served very cold and I'm, I'm going to do it and she just says, please don't kill them. So I was totally fine with it. I was really okay that she didn't. And I think if King would have had her go in there, it, I, he would have made it okay. But I would have been like, can you let her just like yeah. be calm by herself? Like, can you let her yeah. not experience any more terror mm. and trauma? Mm. I think from that early point in the, in the story, Billy is from the very first moment he lays eyes on her, regardless of his motivations for doing it, he is protecting her. Yes. So when he fishes her out off the street, he's protecting her. When he does this on her behalf, he's protecting her because it has to be done and she can't do it. Because if, as you say, if she does, she then has to live with the experience of having taken a life. Um, or even if she doesn't, go that far if she's you know is capable of doing what um what he does she then has to live with it and then at the end when when he goes he understands how she feels about him but he has a much more um experienced perspective which is like i know how this is gonna go and if you stay stay with me you're gonna waste the best years of your life on me yeah so I'm going to have to I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to make the break because you can't cruel to be kind. <clears throat> yes. Bucky's absolutely right. Yeah. I will. You are going to I will spoil your life. I know you don't see it like that, mm. but I will spoil your life if if I stick around. And I've got so I've, I've got to go. Yeah. And we see what happens when, you know, in the final third of the book, in that that final coda where a life she does take a life and the impact it has upon her and and i love the way that billy doesn't try and you know sugarcoat it or disney dust it he's just like it's right that this haunts you because regardless of however heinous this individual is you, you've taken a life and again that's something that you carry um so yeah i i i definitely felt he that idea of sparing even more trauma for what she has been through and it's that care that he has that she has for him this gravitational pull and i'd love us to talk a bit about the love story that for me is at the very very core of this book that that journalist clearly hadn't read his hadn't done his reading or uh because it's love is at the heart of this book and this relationship between Billy and Alice is one of King's most beautifully portrayed relationships for my money up there with Jake and Sadie and so many of the romances. Where, where does this beating heart of the love of the love story, what does it do for you? Sigh for, for, for you when you read it. 
Well, there's love in the story even before Alice turns up, which is <laughs> one of one of the things that wrong-footed me. Because when Billy is settling into this community and he's really becoming a part of this community and he's spending time with the kids and the families, I predicted in my inexperienced mind that what would happen would he would become so involved mm. with this community that then pages and pages and months and months down the line or however long it took, because I thought there'd be an endless delay for this guy showing up for his, his court hearing, that he'd be so changed by that experience that he'd be incredibly conflicted and wouldn't be able to take the shot or something like yes, that. Yes, yeah. You, you sort of feel <laughs> feel the love that's sort of um, inherent and you would hope is a lot more widespread than sometimes it feels. Mm. Maybe I'm just a cynical Londoner. Um, <laughs> I, hope, I hope I am. But... Um, it's, yeah, it seems to me that, that, that you know, that there was a lot of love in in, in the story yeah. before Billy took the shot and make a, make mm. a, um, made a run, run for it. But there's one of the things he doesn't want to think about, and he's always reminded of by this, um, this picture. By the drawing, yeah. Um, is, uh, you know, how those people are going to feel about him now. And what hurts him, what hurts him more is not the lives he's taken it seems to me, but the respect of the people that, that, that he loved or that he was getting close to and that he felt really loved and in some small way and respected him, yeah. even though they didn't know him. Mm. him. Mm. And now what must they think of me? Mm. Now they know the truth. And those, uh, those people who are working down the hall that I was really mm. friendly with, who all seemed like really decent people, yeah. must they think of me? Um, yeah, and the, the 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 love between the love story between him and between him and Alice, it, he it's very, and this is probably part of the anti-hero thing I suspect as well. It's very reluctant on his on his side. Yeah, um, he's very you know. It's not just that he he's aware that it can't it can't last. He's aware of the inappropriateness of it. He's aware that of the experience that. That, that she's coming from and that um, what might the feelings that are going to be transferred onto him by virtue of the fact that he was the one who rescued her from it and then what he does on, on her behalf. So in some way, Billy sort of paints himself into a bit of a corner mm. with this um, by virtue of, um, by virtue of his code. Yeah. Because he can't let these guys get away with it. He does that, on her behalf, and of course, it completely um, endears him to her. So mm. he's sort of the love, the love story between the two of them. I feel develops in a in a large um, respect, kind of accidentally, almost, almost yeah. accidentally. Um, I reserve the right to to, to adjust that, but it, it does feel mm. it's not something he's gone into, is it? Sort of wide eyes open, thinking I'm going to forge a relationship with this woman what mm. what he wants is i'm going to get this woman off the street um i'm going to get her out of my life as fast as i possibly can and then i'm going back to plan a which was to get out of dodge yeah um and of course <laughs> uh, <laughs> best laid plan plans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and I, I suppose because of that evolution, it's more endearing. 
Yeah. But what, Kim, what did you, mm. it, it really, it, it really, really moved you, didn't it? Oh my really? God, yeah. Oh my God, yes, you guys, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. This could be also because I just recently finished Wizard and Glass. And Wizard and Glass has a tremendous love story throughout. Mm. And one thing that I think King does incredibly well is forbidden love. And that's what we have with Wizard and Glass, Forbidden Love, and we have it here again in Billy Summers, Forbidden Love. These people are not supposed to be together. Billy is trying to logic his way out of this, but this magical thing happens where he is in close proximity with this girl who has these wide eyes for this rescuer, for this mysterious kind rescuer so she kind of gloms onto him like a barnacle which is understood she's <laughs> young she's young and she has according to the text a healthy relationship with her father her father has passed away and so typically psychologically speaking when females have a healthy relationship with an older male you try and subconsciously recreate that with romantically sometimes um, if you've had a positive older uh, male role model in your life and so you think we get as we as the reader get that impression that she really likes him over time she's wants to help him wants to because she's healing he's healing there's this little cocoon of Mm. them being together Mm. and it's forbidden it really is it should not be happening like simon says he's just trying to logic his way out of this all right how many here's what i gotta do to get free get this person out of my life but he is going through this personal therapy this discovery with this writing he never knew it was going to make him feel like this he never knew he was going to get so into it and then there's this lovely person who needs him and he likes being needed he likes feeling like the good guy like simon said when he was in that community people were respecting him people liked him little neighbor kids were making pictures for him Mm -hmm. he was going to cookouts like he got a taste of a normal life And then he saved this woman's life and she is looking at him with just all this hope and connection and just saying, you're good. You're a good person. You saved me and I want to be with you and I want to help you. And psychologically speaking, there's a lot of stuff she's going through and that's what kind of makes it a forbidden bond because I think she's just projecting all this stuff. But... The other argument is there's something genuinely beautiful between the two of them. There is a genuine love connection and they tell each other, they tell each other, they tell each other. She says, I love you. And he says, I love you too. And it is the realest, most genuine thing these people could express between each other. It's unconsummated sexually, but it is just the deepest bond that they're going to, it's just so real it is so real and genuine and there's something incredibly special here between these two because they have everything against them everything against them yeah yeah Yeah, as you say it's unconsummated which is often the best kind of Mm. it is Mm. yeah it's a deeper bond it's just a deeper bond but but again those those moments that king doesn't shy away from writing about where you know they do end up in close physical proximity and you know uh, biology kicks in but again they 
Billy doesn't overstep that mark, mm. especially early on. You know, incredibly aware of the um, craziness of the situation, the vulnerability of the situation. Um, but it felt very real, those moments. This It doesn't feel like some kind of chaste Victorian forbidden love. It feels like very, very right here, right now. You know, but that for me is when I absolutely was like, yeah, you, okay, you are, you are a good guy. You won't yeah. see it, Billy. You won't see it. And the road you take Alice down and the life you've led, I don't think you'll ever be able to see it. And he never preaches, but his, he's not a father figure because King writes about the relationship too it's, there's too many layers to it than that but there are elements of a father figure you know and she's lost her father um of him taking care of her but there's also those moments of you know man and attractive woman together and i feel that those moments where she's like look I can I can heal you. I can help you. I can yeah. see you're scared. I can see you're hurting. I can see you're lonely. You know, do you want me to stay the night? It just felt so, so real. And yes. I'm reading it going, well, wow, they don't. And I'm so glad they don't. But yeah. if they, it always felt like they might and they could yes. because it felt so mm. real, that relationship. Um no, I, I think in a different draft. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would pay money. I would pay money to get that draft. Because it's so, it, it is so close towards the end of the yeah. the novel. Right towards the end of the novel, they, they. I seem to remember a moment where where Billy says, you know, this relationship. I know it's it's one thing, but it does have this sort of father daughter dynamic to it, and she says. She says, um, she admits to him, yes, I have I have feelings for you. They are not in any way daughterly. <laughs> yeah. So they're both aware of, of what they are sailing towards. I love that that is in there because she is healing and what she has been through has been horrific. But again, my take as a guy reading it is it hasn't broken Alice you know, no. because, you know, it hasn't. She is strong and she is She's like, look, this isn't chased here. I'm a woman and I'm I'm healing. And I, you know, there's just this this blood that's pumping through both of them because they're so beautifully realized as characters. And I definitely, you know, he's Alice is too strong a character to stay just be portrayed in a lane as the victim or Billy as the hero. We're working on far more nuanced writing than that, right? It's, it's yeah, it's so rich and layered and she sees him as, as that hero yeah. and, and he is. And that's just what I kind of love about the character arc of Billy is he's the anti-hero pretty much the entire time. But because there was such respect and mm. such caution and care and kindness toward Alice and there was just a lack of selfishness like that's the definition of heroic and so he kind of goes 180 he's our anti-hero he's this assassin and yet he could have been completely selfish and he says to the reader he's like I'm tempted I'm not gonna lie yeah. I'm tempted he's like I'm very tempted but I don't think he knew that if the way it was going the, the path they were on, she was going to get more hurt. 
And even Bucky was like, you're going to ruin her. You got to break this off because you're going to hurt her more. And that's what heroism is, is when you put somebody else in front of your own selfish desires, your own safety. That's what he did for her. And so we have this beautiful character arc with Billy from oh it's just magic he's a hero he's a hero for in this loving relationship and this connection and i love what you said alice is not a damsel she's really resilient Mm -hmm. she knows what she wants she she might be a little confused but it feels right Mm -hmm. it's the confusion because it's emotion and healing and Mm -hmm. they're moving around and it's closeness but love is those those early days of love and attraction are pure insanity anyway mm. so it, you know you're nobody's a sane individual yeah yeah right absolutely and, and and the confusion of you know because effectively so much of this book is is a road trip novel you know especially in that mm. second half and you know they're going on these missions and she's going with him and she's put you know really being put in danger and she you know this novel she grows old so fast so quickly and has actually not she's lost her dad when we meet her and you know carries his picture in the wallet and i i I love that little touch and then if anyone is a father figure it's almost bucky Bucky. i I, I get the sense you know i I love the character of bucky uh in my in my head he's mike from breaking bad that's the oh yeah (laughs) yeah. um you know just kind of saying to billy look I know you're good, but you just, you be careful with her. And then also saying to her, look, he's great, but he's hurt and he's not of your world. You know, there is that, he's that kind of glue between them. And I love how this initially incidental character that I thought might only appear as the person who might get Billy out of this and help him with the, you know, the, the um, expedition actually becomes a major character again wrong footing everything at every moment you just suddenly like and bucky really really is such a key um player within within their story and and, and their, their their love story really there's a there's a definite irony isn't there in the in the the, the maturity that alice uh experiences whilst at the end of the book in order to make this scheme work she has to seem as young as possible she has to seem like a real child actually the more childlike or early teenagery she can look the better the chance they have of ensnaring this guy but beneath that mask there's a really um mature rapidly um wising young woman this love story is just so complex and that's Mm. what makes it wonderful is we as the reader we have the logic we know alice is wounded she should not be getting involved with anything above her head sexually that should not be what's happening billy this should not be happening for billy he's got to get out of here he can't be entangled so the reader is faced with this scale and then all we want is to shove that aside and we want these people together and that's where the true power of this romance is is we just want them together because we know they're good for each other at least in this moment 
and it's it's so powerful it's so powerful i'm so smitten for it it's genuine <laughs> and well done i i'm obsessed you guys like. yeah i i too right and i wonder if bucky is brought in almost to be that choric kind of voice of just mm-hmm. going you know um just speaking on behalf of the reader you know going you really really shouldn't take her with you any further <laughs> but but uh, but you but she's integral to Billy's story arc and his quest for redemption and closure as well. Um, He has to take her and put her in an incredibly vulnerable position. Uh, And and that moment on the, uh, on the page that stood out for me, you know, where they're in uh, on the final quest for the real um, villain of the piece, you know, and and he's getting Alice to just lift up her skirt. And, and he says, right now run your, run your tongue around your lips and Billy then obviously not playing Billy behind yet another mask as they both are. It's like, that's enough. And she's like, whoa, you know, those moments where it's like, I'm not, no, 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 not at all. You know, this precious, precious person, I'm already putting her right in the firing line. Um, yeah. And and it is because it's that story of love, right? When you love someone, it's not linear and there's a craziness to it and there's good decisions and bad decisions that happen and you protect each other, but you also sometimes, you know, you end up putting each other at risk. It's, it's, that's why for me, this is a love story. Uh, absolutely to rival his greatest. hundred percent. Could not um, agree more. Oh my gosh. We have just a mountain of evidence and analysis <laughs> on these two. Cause it's like, where do we even begin to scratch the surface of this genius bond, this forbidden love, this this connection between these very unlikely people who should not have met. They should not have, their yeah. paths should have never crossed. And it's so good. Yeah. It is. So where do you both see, you know, we saw at, say, the end of Firestarter, you know, we get these hints of, you know, Charlie, what she does next and where she goes and the story she tells and the light she tries to bring out of all of this. I, I, I'd love to know, where do you think Alice, what happens to Alice next? I think she leads a beautiful full life. Mm. I really do. I think that, I I think I talk about this in my episode. It reminded me of the ending of Titanic just a little bit. Because mm-hmm. when I was very young, I was so heartbroken that Leo and the Jack, Jack Dawson, that he perished and that Jack and Rose could not be together. But as I watched it as a grown woman, I was like, that was the best thing he did for her. She was able to live a beautiful, full life with lots of love and children and learning and adventures. And that's what Billy has set up Alice to do. She ends this novel with a really robust financial nest egg from him. She's discovered that she wants to study English. She's like, I think I really like this. Before she was really lost. She didn't know what she wanted. She now has direction for some kind of path. She knows where she wants to live. She really likes Colorado. So he has given her the open door for a full, beautiful life. And I think she's going to love others and get her heart broken and grow and travel and maybe have children. Like she's going to lead a glorious full life. And that is the most wonderful gift he could have ever given her. And that's why it's so romantic. That ending is just a censure that this guy who went through so much, who had a very hard hand of cards dealt to him where murder and death was just a part of his existence 
And yet at the end of all things, he has given life and love and kindness to he's he's left everything better than when he found it and it's just such a beautiful beautiful character conclusion so i i'm really excited for alice i think she's gonna do amazing at school i wish she was in my class yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well i wonder if we might see her again you never know, we know what king's like with you know we're seeing with holly gibney you know and oh. again there's no reason why i love that kim you say about opening the door to a full life um i, I love that read on it what about you Sai? Where, where do you see where do you see alice going next well i agree with kim um i think it is as i hope it is mm. um a full brave um engaged life i think the one thing that i that i would add is one thing that's missing from that life which i think is violence i think it's quite oh. an ordinary life in that respect don't, don't get me wrong i think it's i think it's adventure and i think she's 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 a very um a vibrant person to know but I don't feel that her path is now to kind of follow Billy. Right. Yes. No. Yeah. Um, mm, mm. I don't think she's going to, you know, try to, you know, pick up the mantle. I don't, yeah. I don't think that, I no. don't think that fits. I think what he's left her with is, is a sense that it's kind of a kind of a look behind the curtain. Yeah. A sort of, that's what I came from and that's and that's what i did and i, I wouldn't really wish that i certainly yes. don't wish it to you so mm. close the curtain but take all of this um this steel and this fire that you've got and just use it to build this to build this life but don't do what i did i mean i mean you've got the opportunity that i Useful. did get where somebody kind of took <clears throat> me sort of under their wing a little bit although it does happen to a certain extent in his in his foster home but not not to the same extent and go look don't do it like this use yeah. these tools to build something better that's what i think she does I, I could just imagine someone going great you know right i know we're gonna, we're gonna make a sequel here we're gonna film alice next steps right cue open alice holding a rifle Someone in the side. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's not her because King has saved her from, you know, and Billy has saved her from that life, I believe. I really do. Um yes. that that's not that's not Alice's story. And really as, beautifully as, what yeah, sorry. As as Mike Ehrman Trout might say about that suggestion, that doesn't sit with me. <laughs> <laughs> Just love those little turns of phrase that might have. Yeah. That doesn't sit with me. Yeah, <laughs> you know exactly right. what he means. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Bucky for me is is Mike for sure. Yeah, I, but I love what you both say about you know he gives her life, and in that final section, the ending of this book, which I think for me is one of the greatest endings of any novel ever. Yes. He gives her life, but she gives him life. She oh. gives him life through the power of being able to tell a story where you can do whatever the damn hell you want. Right. Mm. And when I read this for the first time and I was just thought, Oh my God, he's really hurt. He's really hurting, but he's made it. He's made it. He's okay. And and he's got his pills. And, and yeah, he's pretty wounded. But again, we now go to where they heal. They'll go back to Bucky. And and this is he him healing. She's healing deeply. They've healed together. He's helped her heal. 
in the womb, the periscope of of, of where they're hiding out. Now they go back to the uh, to Sidewinder and they heal in Bucky's place. Bloody hell, that was close, but he made it because it just nicked him. The bullet nicked him. Oh, you know, you know, for him saying it nicked him, it's probably quite deep. But actually, I don't think any vital organs were hit. And I, it in a less with a lesser writer with a lesser novel, I would have felt manipulated. But actually, I was like, oh my god, that's just when the curtain gets pulled back and we realise what actually has happened at the end. For me, it seems totally fitting. It seems absolutely right and just and honest and it also speaks to that the power of the love of of the craft of fiction which is at the heartbeat of this this novel i mean you said you you tears were shed kim and i i completely uh was the same uh what a what an ending from from a story point of view correct me if if i'm wrong because i Correct me if I'm wrong, but from a story point of view, neither Billy nor Jack Dawson can live because they've haven't they, they've served their purpose, haven't they? they they've yeah. done what they came, what they needed to do, which yep. was to save Alice and Rose respectively. And now that's done, um, they have to go. They exit stage left. There's, they yeah. don't serve any further. Yeah. function other than to provide a happy ending and yeah. whilst as as wonderful as it is the happy ending never hits as hard yeah. as the as the tragic it, it, but it, it's a it's an absolute kicker in the guts mm. well, i yes. remember because he shifts the writing yes. in that final third it goes from third person to billy talks in the first person and I didn't notice that the first time I read it, but I heard it listening to the audiobook second time around. Paul Sparks' phenomenal, phenomenal um, immersion and portrayal and narration of that book. So, oh, man, we shift to Billy now. We go into the eye. I, I love that narrative shift there. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I love that. Without revealing too much, let's just say there's a little bit of a fake out, as you said. Mm. We get the we get this fictional ending mm. that is everything we want in our hearts. We want mm. success and safety and the bad guys to be dead and the good guys to triumph. And King gives us a little taste of that where we kind of breathe a huge sigh of relief. And then he says, but actually here's what really happened mm -hmm. and it's soul crushing but it's such a brilliant brilliant yeah. fictional tactic because he didn't yeah. just give us a sad tragic ending he gave us a a, a beaten path he gave us a little mm -hmm. side road there but mm -hmm. he says that isn't true here's what really happened and it was so soul crushing to know to have both to have both yeah. versions and I think the both versions was so incredibly successful because we were able to hold on to the fantasy and hold on to the hope a little longer with mm -hmm. this sort of fake out. And then you grieve with the reality. Yeah. You grieve with the lost hope and you grieve with that's not how, how, how much we wished it would have happened the way that he originally told us. And that's mm -hmm. why I think I 
let out a, a I had a real cathartic scream cry at the end yeah. of this guy's like I I have that has not happened to me in a long time with a book and so I welcomed it I was like this is the power of story this is the power of fiction yeah. this has completely moved me yeah. moved my whole soul in all the ways and I just let myself scream cry on the couch for a good long while yeah yeah i don't think you get a better endorsement yeah yeah as somebody that's that's that's, you know created a a work of art and a response like that from its audience as perverse as as it might seem the artists would just go oh cool yeah (laughs) great Job done. Job, yeah, jobs. Yeah, jobs are good. And what a review I read uh, um, of this novel. Yeah, a love letter to the transformative effects of putting words on paper that masquerades as a boiler plot action thriller. Ambitious, controlled, and compelling shapeshifter of a book, combat novel, platonic romance, noir caper, portrait of an artist coming of belated age. Its pleasures are numerous and it touches the mind, the heart and the nervous system in equal measure. I love so that. Good. Tom Nolan from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and, and this, you know, for what it's worth, the reviews for this book uh, has been a pleasure trawling through them unanimously, you know, across the globe were just like, wow, people describe me as one of his greatest ever novels, you know, greatest hits book, complete return to form. And just, yeah, they're universally glowing uh, with both the, the plotting, the pacing, the characterization, uh, the themes. I mean, everything. I love that. So just one quick aside here. They said it's a return to form. Mm. So when did Stephen King lose his form? For me, this one is, uh, you know, I mean, some of the phrases that a grandfather clock that looks embarrassed to be here. Genius. Mm. Genius. Genius, right. Cash has amnesia. Ah! (laughs) Yep. Yep. Oh, my God. Amazing. And the dumbing down. He talks about Billy. It's like a seatbelt you wear because you don't know who'll be coming over the hill, weaving across the road. There's a lovely description of, of, of Billy as he's walking to the to the car after his um, after his injury. I think this is. He gets into the passenger seat with the slow, almost glassy care of an old man with arthritic hips. The <laughs> yeah. slow glassy care. Kim, you have to get this book on. All right, this has got to be taught it's to those gotta. hearts and minds. It's. Uh... I agree. I agree. I know I have to find a way. I have to find a way. So it is shot to, I think it might be a top five king pick for me, guys, which is huge. I only have a top four. I was leaving room because I I wasn't sure. I I have silver, gold, and bronze for my top 15. (laughs) And um, I think this might be a top five. I'm going to stew on it a little bit, but this has just it's a game changer of a novel. It is Mm. beyond stunning. I am inspired. I am galvanized. I just want to spend time with it, with my students and analyze it further. Mm. And I, it's just when, when something screams that loud with power, it's like, how do you not just want to scoop it up? And yeah. So yeah, I am, 
a huge fan and I'm really working hard to plug it into my curriculum. I don't know if I'll be able to get the whole novel, but we're going to get some chunks, I some very it. important chunks. So yeah. I'm any, I, Billy, any Billy is better than no Billy. So correct. You know, it's, <laughs> correct. Absolutely. I even managed Amazing. to get a couple more um, new curses out of this book. And I love the line. <laughs> it was a really nice line in classy curses. Um, one of which I've got to check, though, because um, he talks about the um, Tomcat's testicles. <laughs> yeah. is, that a bad, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because on this side of the pond, when we say something's bollocks, it's rubbish. And it's crap. But if something's the dog's bollocks, it's really yeah. good. So is that, is that the equivalent, the Tomcat's testicles, something that's... I love that. That's fascinating. I think what he might be doing is taking cat's pajamas, which uh, is yeah, great, yeah, yeah. right? Ah, cat's yeah. pajamas and the then knees, testicles, but... dog's bollocks. So I'm thinking it's positive. Positive it's a hybrid mashup of from, <laughs> from both sides of the pond, right? It's... I love it. It's so good. <laughs> and the uh, and the other one was something uh, something that hurts like a blue fuck. That is one of my favorites. <laughs> let's talk about some of the Easter eggs that are in this novel. Let's because, <laughs> yes, yes, let's because I I wasn't um, sure I picked it I picked it up the first time it was it was referenced when she. Um, because it's talked about a bit and then it's confirmed. But but the first reference to it is the um, is when he goes to do uh, when Billy goes to do some writing in um, this sort of shack that's um, slightly away from from Bucky's house. There's a painting of some hedge animals. And, oh, that's not the first time we've uh, encountered hedge animals. In, uh, in a Stephen King story. I, I wonder if that was... Oh, this is a really naive thing to have thought, but I thought, I wonder if that was accidental. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Seriously, Simon, how many of these men's books have you read? <laughs> I was disappointed in even myself. But, um, yeah, and then when Alice, she goes for a uh, an early morning walk or something and she's admiring the view and she says... Uh, I, I saw a really big, what looked like a bird of prey. It can't possibly have been a condor. And Bucky says, oh, no, you get you get the occasional condor around here. You might probably see one. And then I thought I saw sort of outline of a, of a hotel. Mm. And then I looked away and it was, looked back and it was gone. Mm. I thought, okay. And he says, yeah, that was, and I think it's Bucky. He says, yeah, that was a, I stay away from there. So King said about that with the Overlook Hotel, it was a conscious nod to longtime readers, a way of saying this is not a supernatural book, but I still remember how I got to the dance. <laughs> so good. I love that. It's like a tip of the hat to the genre. And yeah, apparently he knew that they were that they were going to go to Sidewinder. And the minute they were there, that absolutely, you know, that the, the Overlook and the Hedge Animals and all of that was going to be there. I think it was on the way to Sidewinder when they're driving, just Alice and Billy, and I think it's Alice's perspective, and she looks over in the car next to her, and there's a young boy in a clown mask. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, it begins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he's, was... he's written about clowns, hasn't he? He's a gosh. He's got form, right? <laughs> 
I love well, and, that. Um, just on, on the subject of, of clowns, um, I don't want our, 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 our readers to miss out, our listeners to miss out on um, the dialogue that we were having just before recording of what our lovely Simon Balkan was doing on Halloween. What, what were you doing, sir? Would you like a clue? Oh, my God. <laughs> I've got something up my sleeve for you. Oh, that's that's too good. It's awful. <laughs> I mean, Kim, you've been spoilt. You requested singing. You've had singing. I did. You requested <sighs> impressions. I think we're on our third one now. Now, listen, Christmas has come early, okay? It really you, has. You set the expectation now. It's, it's what if what monster have created? Beep, beep. Huh? <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, my heart my heart was beating on that one <laughs> i needed a bit more i had to get a bit more sort of sing song a bit more sort of up and down into yeah. the into the voice because it's really high and then it's sort of just it, you know and read really sort of childlike as well yeah yeah um, but, who's uh, yeah, who's Pennywise? Be... We who's Pennywise? Am I, are we right in saying when they asked you, you know, we'd like you to play Pennywise? Your your wonderful response, I. I said, which one? <laughs> That's I just so I'm cool. Fine. I think I'm fine. Um, there's, <laughs> if you know, you know. One, uh, a character available to you in the canon. Which which one would you like? <laughs> uh, I, I, I thought it would be Bill Skull's girl because it's yeah. obviously you know, the more. Um, yeah. But uh, the classic is available for you too. Hello, Georgie. Your, your father is very a, a very wise man. Very wise. <laughs> and right, right I... now, listeners, yeah, <laughs> Kim is sat thrown back against the couch with the uh, <laughs> the headphones at full stretch in a scramble to get away. In fact, even the wonderful cat that we saw walking in and out of the background. Cat's long gone. I, I'm not hanging around for that. There's something <laughs> creepy going on here. Catch me, fat boy. Oh, oh God. <laughs> it's it's too good, Simon. It's too good. It's bone chilling. It is too much a... television. Way <laughs> yeah. too much television. A misspent or a well spent youth and uh, yeah. middle age and uh, older age and yeah, nothing nothing <laughs> better to do with me time. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely Stellar. brilliant and of course there is on our instagram feed there is a brilliant one minute worth of Cy doing his pennywise so you'll get the you'll get the impressions you'll get the visuals as well so um yeah to help you sleep at night do you go and check that out <laughs> but it's yeah, not the only yeah it's not the only easter egg though is it there's um what has anyone else discovered another one i've got i've got a little egg up my sleeve as mm -hmm. it were Mm -hmm. Which is there's a scene where they stop very briefly on one of their road trips at Hemingford House. Oh my goodness, yes! Yeah. Which is in Nebraska. Yes, and which King novel is it in? The Stand yes. and 1922. Oh, oh. yeah. See, legend, right? Kim yeah. C. When we do our next uh, special edition with quizzes involved. We're getting you in the chair. All right. Excellent. <laughs> I'm there with my buzzer. I'm ready to go. All right. Yeah. Absolutely, man. <laughs> fingers, fingers on buzzers, teams. Yeah. So we've got the overlook. We've got Hemingford home. What else? What else? What other eggs are there? 
Well, this this one's a little bit oblique, but bearing in mind there's no such thing as coincidence. Really early in the um, yeah. in the book, um, one of the films that Billy watches is The Asphalt Jungle, which is an old um, old heist movie from the uh, uh, 30s or 40s, I think. But the cast includes James Whitmore. Oh. Probably a very young James Whitmore, mm-hmm. um, who will be very well known to um, many, many, many Stephen King fans as uh, Brooks. Oh, yes. Brooks. Interestingly, Brooks was here. He so was. was red. Um, <laughs> my heart. Um, <laughs> yeah, one of the other members of the cast, and this, 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 this is an, an Easter egg. This probably is a. <laughs> coincidence in inverted commas but one of the other actors in the asphalt jungle um was sterling hayden now very few people have probably heard of sterling hayden you would have heard of him if he had been able to accept a role that he was offered in the late 70s fingers on buzzers teams which hollywood role did sterling hayden have to turn down in 1978, probably, or oh, 77 or 78. And Star, is it Star is Wars? it King related? Yeah, no. This is why I say it's not. It's not quite. It's not a King related thing. Um, Tim, you said Star Wars. No, no, no. same different. Exactly the same time. Very, very closely direct related directors. Indiana Jones. You're re- you're close. Right director. Jaws. Close. Oh yeah. Was it Jaws? Yes. Excellent. Well done. Yes. <laughs> oh, <to> Kim. Um, <laughs> Sterling Hayden was Steven Spielberg's first choice to play Quint. Ah, oh, no way. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, by that by by that point in his life, Sterling Hayden was living abroad yeah. and couldn't work back in the US. Because of um, tax reasons, the IRS wanted a huge amount of money from him, and if he went back to work in the okay. film in um, in the states to make Jaws, it would have been a financial nightmare. So he couldn't go with Sterling Hayden. And if you see photographs of Sterling Hayden when he was that age, he looked like the quintessential fisherman. Yeah, the quintessential uh, um, quint. The quintessential <laughs> quint, indeed. Boom, boom. Little Wednesday, uh, dry the veal. Beep, beep. <laughs> beep, beep, Maddie. Beep, beep, Maddie. <laughs> Maddie, that's a good again. one. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I, fact, it's so crazy. I can't picture anyone as Quint than Robert Shaw. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? If you, want a, if you want a book that is full of these sorts of almost was castings, um, and now you can't imagine anybody else but this actor doing it, um, Check out a book called "If the Other Guy's Not Jack Nicholson, I've Got the Part." <laughs> That's an amazing title. Brilliant! It's, uh, it's a quote from Burt Reynolds, who was having a conversation <laughs> with his agent, <laughs> and Burt Reynolds had just come out of a meeting with uh, Milos Forman. He was um, casting "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest," mm. and um, 
Reynolds' agent says, Mr. Foreman loved you. He thought you were absolutely terrific. I'm, I'm pretty sure you've got this one in the bag. He's only got one other actor to meet, but then he'll probably call you to offer you the part of McMurphy. And Burt Reynolds says, great, if the other guy's not Jack Nicholson, I've got the part. Well, listen, as we are, this is a beautiful segue. It's as if we've done this before. And genuinely, none of this is scripted, uh, dear listener. But if we're talking about castings and who can you picture in roles and if it could be Jack Nicholson, who knows? Let's shift slightly now our mindset to imagine we are those casting directors and a little project lands on our desk called Billy Summers. I, I gotta know. I gotta know, guys. When you're reading that book or when you're casting it, who are gonna play those roles? You know, we're talking Billy, we're talking Alice. You know, I've already said that for me, Bucky is Mike, but let's focus on let's open the batting with Billy. Who who would you see being cast as Billy? And we do know that they are do there is talk of a twenty twenty two miniseries happening uh of Billy Summers. With J.J. Abrams as a producer, not director. That that was the latest on it. Kim, who's who's getting who's getting your your casting vote as Billy? Oh my gosh, this is the most fun question. <laughs> so we'll start with Alice first because oh, right. this is so serendipitous. So every now and again, I I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older, but I'm. I allow myself on occasion to get sucked up into a teen drama, like a teen romance, <laughs> completely for teenagers. And one of them I was avoiding for years and years and everyone raved about it. And it was called Riverdale uh, on the CW network, but it's on Netflix now. And I think you guys would love it. I know it's a teen romance, but the writers are total King fans. There's King Easter eggs everywhere. But it's based on Archie comics. So Aha! it's, I know, it's Betty and Veronica and Archie and Jughead, but they're modern day teens, but they also wear like 50s costumes. It's brilliant. It's so good. So I got sucked in by the costumes and the Archie comics because I was reading Billy who likes Archie comics. Yeah, so yeah. I, I binged like five seasons and it was delightful. <laughs> and the actress who plays Betty Cooper, she's a little bit Nancy Drew. She is blonde and youthful. And I don't remember what color Alice's hair was. Doesn't really matter. But this actress is Lily Reinhardt and she's about mm -hmm. 24, 25. She's a perfect age. Mm -hmm. She's got a lot of gumption. So definitely Google her as soon as we're done. Google, mm -hmm. she's perfect. She's just bright blue eyes. She's got a real Nancy Drew spirit. She solves a lot of the mysteries in Riverdale. She's just perfect. And I was like, that's Alice, that's Alice. She is knocked down, but not for long. Smart, savvy just oh yeah so i was watching based on archie comics riverdale i got sucked into this teen drama which i don't know how that happens life's a mystery i tell you so <laughs> huge huge guilty pleasure just the ultimate guilty pleasure show but it's really well written lots of spooky great costumes it's it's severely underrated so lily reinhardt for alice and regarding Billy, this took me a minute. There's a lot of good mm. ones, but I kept coming back to the actor, Joel Edgerton. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so I think he's an Aussie and 
I think he's brilliant. I think he's a brilliant actor, writer, director, all the things. But the reason why I chose him is I think he would be able to play the simple Billy. I think that a lot of the actors I was looking at have a lot of bravado, have a lot of sex appeal. And the thing that Billy has to do is hide that. He has to hide that intelligence and hide that sharpness with his simple, gullible, go with the flow nature. And I think Joel Edgerton, I've seen him in these roles where he's able to play that really well. Like you kind of underestimate him and you're like, are, are you, who are you? Are, are you, who's under there? So Joel Edgerton, I don't, it's, I, it was a tough choice. It was a tough choice, but I'd really love to see him on an audition tape. <laughs> Then you shall. You are the casting yeah. director, Kim C. So absolutely, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I have actually had a little sneaky Google at, uh, at Lily, at Lily Reinhardt. <gasps> and yeah, so, yeah, totally. Yes. yes, good casting. I'm so glad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good call there. Beautiful. What about for you, Sai? If you're uh, you're you're moving from uh, in in front of the the camera and on stage to uh, to to backstage and to the uh, to the casting uh, decisions. What are you going for? Well, I think for Alice, um, I really wanted. I'd be very interested to see what Emma Stone would do. With. <laughs> Ooh, good one. Now I know I want Emma Stone to be in everything. <laughs> so, yeah, and no, I think I think she. I mean, yeah, the vulnerability, the steel. <laughs> Um, the mm. sort of, the sort of, I imagined Alice as a bit as a bit of a waif, you know, someone quite slim mm. and um, sort of not skeletal but sort of waif-like mm. in a way. Um, now maybe that's, yeah, maybe maybe that's a sort of a mechanical problem in 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 my brain, but it's just what I saw. Um, yeah. In terms uh, for Billy, oh, yeah. although for, for Bucky, Jack Nicholson as well, I think he'd do that or one of the other. <laughs> yeah, nice. you know, um, great man, great. Um, but as for as for Billy, uh, I assume it's too late for me to read for it. <laughs> I did not mean to laugh at that. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you're well, casting Emma Stone, you know, folks, it's way too late for me to read. For well, it. Listen, dude. <laughs> by then, the restraining order will have kicked in on Emma Stone. So you know, they're like, right, we were going to cast this guy, but he can't be within two hundred yards of her. Yeah, the same country as her. So yeah. <laughs> sorry, Simon. Well, um, we're talking about fiction and the power of fiction, you know, and it can do whatever we want. Why the hell can't you be Billy? Yeah. Absolutely. I think that um, <laughs> Stephen King shot me in the foot a little bit because ah. uh, I cannot get out of my head the actor that he had in his head when he was yeah. writing this. Mm -hmm. So I think he's right, right on the money. Mm -hmm. uh, he can do sort of everything that Billy Summers is required to do, and that's uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, he could turn his hand to that. Was absolutely King's casting, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> And I thought, no, I can say, I can see him doing that. Yeah. Really well. You can see the steelness. You can see him mm. being able to play the dumb Billy as yeah. well. Yeah. Yes. So. Great spot. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And, and, and have someone buy it. Yes. Um, so, 
yeah, yeah, really talented siblings, uh, both Jake and and, uh, and Maggie. Yeah. Um, by the way, just as a complete aside, if you haven't seen The Lost Daughter, which is uh, a film that um, Maggie Gyllenhaal wrote and directed, um, starring Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley, mm-hmm. um, give it a look. Very, very good film. Jake, Jake seems a little youthful in the face for me. Maybe I haven't seen him in a minute, but I don't know. I think my Billy is a little more seasoned. He's a bit seasoned, little, yeah. Yeah, he does grow more. a good. Gyllenhaal has a good beard when he's got good beard action. That does give him a little, true. age him a little well, bit. Um, Billy's only supposed to be like he's mid forties, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. But I know I, he's not that old, Kim. I know. I know. I, I, for whatever reason, like my visual imagination, I think yeah. I was seeing someone a little salt and pepper. Like I was seeing someone that I, had a little bit of seasoned look yes. to him. So I, I'm going to share mine. Then I'm, I want to know who you'd want to direct, actually, because I think that might be an interesting choice about yeah how it would come along. For me, I'm going to go for, and I, I, yeah, you saw her first, but I had her written down here, Emma Stone. Alice Emma Stone. Oh, nice. Uh, absolutely. So Emma Stone for Alice. For Billy, um, so so, so there's two or three. In fact, before I come to Billy, for Nick, you know, Nick the gangster, Nick Majerian, who's just mm. such a great character, um, I'd love to bring back the wonderful James Gandolfini. In my head, I just saw James Gandolfini, you know, in nice. that gangster feel of this novel. So, but as my Billy, initially I went for Rupert Friend. Um, oh, I, I love him. I think he's amazing. And I remember he, for me, was the absolute heartbeat of uh, Homeland. And and yes. actually Homeland got better for me once Damien Lewis had exited. And then we focused on Quinn. Um, yep. I love him. And I, I, I want him to be the next Bond. He doesn't seem to be as part of the discussions or conversations, but he's a phenomenal actor. He's wonderful. Yeah, really soulful. Um, I'd like to see what Ed Norton could do with this role. Oh, mm-hmm. I like that. I know he's got the chops, and I know there's a slight kind of reserve or coldness. So I'd like to see that. But I'm thinking, like, quite bold casting. I would really, really love to see in the way that Tarantino brings back some of those actors and recasts them, reframes them. Did it with Travolta in Pulp Fiction? Um, and you know, I would love to see George Clooney <gasps> sink his teeth into Billy Summers and let go of all of the, uh, not all the charm. Cause I think Billy's hugely charming, but get rid of some of the ticks and some of the ease and just there's, there's something there. I think that I would love, I'd love to see him, uh, in this role. He's certainly got the salt and pepper going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for that, I think you'd need a really, really strong director to just be able to to, to bring to bring that soulfulness out, you know. But I think if you got it right, it could be a real career defining uh, new new stage, you know. Because uh, I think he needs the help because he's not done very well. I mean, who is that Clooney guy, right? I mean, he needs all, <laughs> he needs all the help he can get, right? Is he still your neighbour? <laughs> he, yeah, I haven't seen him for a while, but again, that's the restraining order on me, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he does. Can he lives? Well, one of his many, many, many houses is uh, just down the road from me. Um, no, 
Yep, real, real, real true. I've never seen him though in the pub that he apparently drinks in. That I always go there with uh, my family and you know my mother-in-law, and I always proceed it by, you know what, that George Clooney drinks in this pub, and he's never <laughs> ever there, and she's always Aww. really cross and angry. She's like, where is he? Why isn't he here? I'm like, <clears throat> I hope you, I hope you get a good spotting photo well, moment. Kim, maybe one day, and I'll say, hey, listen, this is put <laughs> by Stephen King called Billy Summers. Have a, have <gasps> oh a read gosh. of this. So, so good. You won't yeah. regret it. Speaking yeah. of Clooney, he actually, there's a terrific underrated film called The American. And mm. he plays an assassin and he's held up in Italy for a while. He's like laying low. I would love for you guys to see it. It's a little bit dark, um, but it's quiet. There's like a quiet sort of meditative quality to it. And he's just sort of hanging out in Italy and processing them think some things, but he's an assassin and he's waiting for his next job. So I think you're dead on, Matt, because he's kind yeah. of already tapped into that a little. There's a paranoia almost to this novel, isn't there? That I think Absolutely. would lend itself beautifully to either a film or a miniseries. I, for me, again, and we've spoken about this quite a bit, Cy and I, I, I do think King's work, if you're going to adapt it, the miniseries is the way forward because you get time yes. and space. And as he builds up in the first half of that novel in particular, this suburbia and these relationships and this sense of waiting, I want to see that played out. I want to see those relationships played out and enriched. I don't want that done in just 10 minutes, you know? Mm. Needs to breathe. It needs to gain right. weight. Yes, yes, absolutely. You got me thinking about my director. Do you have a director, Simon? I yeah, I had, I had a name jump to mind. Yeah, in the tone of um, some of the other the films of um, of hers that I've seen. Catherine Bigelow. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. I think of um, Zero Dark Thirty and the Hurtmaker. Um, and I just I remember the tone of them having this real mm. weight. This real gravitas and uh, uh, they both have very dark subject matter i mean maybe maybe one of the names that jumps the name jumped to mind so quickly was because they you know they both have roots in the um the iraq war uh, but she directed point break so you know she's no problem directing action yeah like, but it was just it was more the yeah say more the the vibe of, of both the Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty that make make me think that she's no Great problem choice. with the dark, um, dark tone. For me, I was thinking about the pacing and the plot and how quick everything moves. In class, we have a subject called trimming the fat, like how mm. you have to cut <laughs> out all the unnecessary stuff. And I think this book is a wonderful example of King doing that. It's mm. tight and fast paced and really lots of good subtext. And so I was thinking about the director who's kind of like that, Steven Soderbergh. Oh, and so... Yeah. And so I think you could handle the the weight of the subject matter while still keeping it yeah. quick and maybe mm. keeping mm. preserving the thriller nature a little bit. Um, so it's interesting, though. Um, I yeah, I love Catherine Bigelow, too, because mm. I, I like the emotional yeah. heart that she carries. But I'm curious what Soderbergh would do with mm. that. He's somebody else who keeps retiring, doesn't he? Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> he keeps retiring and goes, oh, actually, yeah, yeah, just, just like Columbo. It's like, 
One more thing. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> just, just one more. Yeah. But, um, well, it's like Sean Penn, isn't it? Sure. Every, I think for the last 20, 30 years, Sean Penn's been retiring. I was in Brooklyn in April and he stepped into my elevator. He stepped into my elevator and of course I went into complete shock and I smiled really big and I said, hello. And he smiled back, which was good. Ah. But he he smiled back, but he definitely gave me that face like, don't talk to me. Don't yes. say one word to me. I did not want to get punched in the throat. So I was like, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to leave this man in peace. So he rode yeah. my elevator up a couple floors, but he was at the gym. So he was pretty fit. Mm. Um, he's just a little seasoned, a little, uh, yeah. a little wiry, a little, little seasoned. So yeah. um, what do you think of him as Billy? Do you think he mm. could put, do you think <laughs> he could do Billy? Too old, too old, too, too old. cranky. <laughs> okay, because he does do a role um, as a role where he plays a hitman. Um, what's the name of it? A uh, fairly <laughs> recent film. Uh, he's um, oh man, the gun. <laughs> my God, here's my old man brain going. Uh, what is it? <laughs> he plays unbelievably a gunman in a film called The Gunman. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah. He's, you know, you know, assassin, one last hit, grizzles, kind of, you know, just a little bit feeling the, the, the punches. They've all added up. And um, I don't know if you could do the lightness. There's there's moments of lightness and levity and charm with Billy that, you know. Um, right. I, I love his voice. Like, I think Sean Penn's got a good mm -hmm. voice. There's a lot of cool stuff there. He's a really good actor. But yeah. I'd like to see a little more. I think what's great about Billy is there's a softness that's we see as the reader it's hard to see but in various moments it is there there's like this vulnerable person in there i don't know if sean's got that i think we need somebody like a gyllenhaal who has this sort of soft delicate side as yeah. strange as that is to verbalize it's like i think sean is like absolutely grizzled like to the <laughs> to the core so i'm like there's no soft with sean there's nothing there but yeah the, the rough bits yes you need the softness because there is the soft there's the vulnerability there's the emotion and the instinct you know that you know it, the baby shoe such a you know saves his life <gasps> oh, and yeah. you know this is someone who is there's a there's so much emotion there um you know it's it's controlled, it's hidden, it, it leaks out, it comes out, you know, which makes it even more appealing and attractive. Um, but it'd be yeah. interesting to see what Sean Penn would have done with it, maybe, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 odd years ago. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I think that would have been some to plug in, but mm -hmm. I would have much rather been in your guys' elevator, to be honest. He... <laughs> no, man. <laughs> yeah. We'd have a riot. <laughs> yeah, he definitely. Up and down, up and down. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Listen, we've got eighty books to talk about. Okay, so we're not we're not <laughs> stopping till we done. Yeah, eighty podcasts. <laughs> right. Yeah, he definitely like I, as you guys can see, I'm just a, a little happy unicorn girl. Um, so he. He's like probably the the most challenging person to encounter someone like myself. <laughs> I'm like, you are frightening, sir. I'm gonna slink to the back. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it was cool. It was very cool to yeah. to have that moment, and I did get a little smile out of him. So that well, that, 
that that's, that's apparently huge. quite rare so that's uh yeah the power of kim c right uh, right it there felt we good go. there we go you know it kind felt of good changing the world for the better <laughs> <laughs> But so, listen, we've we've had a little look at the filming and the casting and some some potential directors, what it might look like. But this this novel, I, I'm really interested to know, you know, we, we, we've had a lovely couple of hours talking about it. And I want to know where it rates for you. Um, and I know it's a it's a fresher read, but I, I actually think yeah, even say, you know, I, 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 even with the latest books of his that I've only read once, I kind of know where it might nestle in and a reread or a re-listen and again the audiobook of paul sparks is phenomenal uh for people i really recommend that too kim for you where does this book sit within your you know your, your top kings or your bottom kings or your fair to middling kings oh my goodness i love this so i've been thinking about it i've been really meditating on this I was blown away by this novel. I was absolutely blown away by this story. And I'm hesitating to cement it in the in in the ranking. So I told my on the podcast I said we're going to wait till the end of the year. We're just going to let the emotions simmer. So we'll mm -hmm. see, but for me it genuinely feels like this could be a top 5 king for me. It really could be a top five and in the top five is what have you got yeah yeah we've got uh it duma key joyland and Ooh. the green mile oh nice 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 so i think it could nestle up next to those because the way this story just moved me heart and soul it's just gorgeous as we've kind of discussed there's so much here the complexity the way this book just keeps changing its spots every 15 or so pages surprising the reader that just mm. all the things we've been discussing this could be a top five for me so if it's not it will definitely land in the top 10 i think little sneak insight so maybe by the end of the year it's cemented maybe. there but it's it's sounds like it's firmly in the running and it sounds like you had a really really emotive emotional physical reaction to the to, to what this man did at this stage in his life it felt it yes it, it felt from what you said it that had a real extra layer of, of power to it 100 percent. it just spoke mm. to me as a teacher me as a creative mm. person mm. me as somebody who's been in an an unrequited love before or wanting to love somebody and it's just not right it's just not meant to be there's there's just so much good stuff here and also being a a, a young woman who is in, in a trying to save yourself and dig yourself out of the bad things that have happened and how do you put yourself back together and move forward this is just an incredible novel for me so it's it might duke it out with 11 22 63 we there might be a little bit of a quarrel but um yeah this might be either like number five or number six one of the two so it's up there wow wow i'd love to see that 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 fight to the death between those <laughs> yeah. two for that for that top spot um beautiful kim thank you sai what about for you you know um 
you were obviously recently of course cast away on the island for survivor type um <laughs> do have a listen to that it's 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 marvelous as size cast to the island <laughs> and then usurped a few weeks later by some some other guy some other bloke um called matt <laughs> but um Billy didn't make it to the island, but again, as we know, we've all been on the island. Those are books that are in that particular moment and in that time. What hold on your heart or not does Billy have? Well, I'm not throwing him on the fire, so (laughs) rest assured there. You're setting the bar that high already. (laughs) Already, yes, yes. Uh, I won't be replacing my my choice with this. Um... That said, it wouldn't usurp any of my choices either, uh, which is not to say, you know, it, I didn't I didn't enjoy it. I thoroughly did. It was a great ride. Like I said, it really surprised me. Um, and I should have known better than to try and second guess Stephen King. I should have just strapped myself in and gone along for the ride, which is to, to an extent what I did. But I thought, oh, I see what he's doing here. And I was like, I don't bloody know it. He doesn't know what he's doing. What chance have I got? It's a cracking yarn. It's another really, really good story. I don't think it's a return to form. I think it's a continuation of form. Mm. Um, And it it delights me that whilst the book is very reflective, you know, because he's having a a, a long look back on on, um, what it's like to, to be a writer and to write, um it's not it's, so in that in that sense it has a real maturity and it's not the book he could have written after salem's lot mm-hmm. because he was so young in his um in his professional career um so but in terms of the, the extent to which it engages me and to which i um i care um it's 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 just what he does that rat bastard. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think that's what I say. It's still on a on a, on a par of um, of excellence. Yeah. What about you? Are you? Is it going? It's not going on your fire, is it? It's. You know what? I I think I'd rather have hypothermia than uh, <laughs> put it on the fire. It ain't going anywhere near those flames. In fact, I'd probably jump into the fire to remove this book <laughs> if anyone else put it in. Um, I, I think it is an absolute masterpiece. Um, yes. I, I, I absolutely adore it. I, I loved it the first time I read it for its tight prose, for its, um, for its emotional heart, for the relationship at the heart of it speaking to me about the power of fiction and how it can save lives you know i've spoken about that before but i really truly believe there is nothing more powerful than uh fiction to be able to um to heal and to empower and i loved it and then i listened to the audiobook for my second time round, the sun with this one and what i'm finding so much over these last few years uh, since the pandemic is King lends himself so beautifully to the audiobooks, and when those words are spoken aloud and the characters brought to life, <clears throat> and I just found myself totally mesmerised by it, and regularly moved um, to tears, and I it absolutely unravelled my heart, um, and the ending 
was on a par with the ending of a little life where I just was like, oh God, just felt like a fist in the heart. Yeah. Um, and, and I do, and I felt such love and affection for the writer, you know, showing, you know, at the age of 73. Mm. He's, he's writing like this. Oh my God. So it's incredible. It really is. It really is, Kim. And for me, it, it, it's got so many echoes. It's a companion piece. It's a sister piece almost to 11-22-63 and also Wizard and Glass, which, as you all know, you know, are, are two of my, my all-time faves and they are on the island with me. So, yeah, I absolutely fell head over heels in love with this book and it would be a really easy recommendation actually i believe again up there with if someone went right i know you do this podcast matt <clears throat> i've not read any king what, what do i go with I, it would be one of my early recommendations because um i, I think this book should be studied and taught and i think it should be okay. studied and taught by kim c yay so we're we're signing up for class who's coming yay! with us Oh my goodness! You, Kim, you're gonna Let's need a bit. You're gonna need a bigger classroom. Let's do it. Yep. Right. We're right. gonna need a bigger right. lecture yeah. hall. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're right. It does. It does work very, very well as a companion piece to eleven twenty two sixty three. It's not just the feel of the love story. It's yeah. the fact that with this this time round, it's told from the assassin's point of view. So and, good. And I think that the one of the Guardian reviews for the book said that it'd be easy to imagine that the genesis of this book was in Stephen King's research for 112263. Yeah. Having to oh, think about that. everything from um, you know, how how finely researched um Lee Harvey Oswald is. Yeah. Like, oh, we'll think about it from, from from his point of view. What was what was his story? Mm. Um and and, and and Billy Summers is is very clued in, I think, to something that's often said to be the first rule of assassination, um, which is kill the assassin. And he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm not going down that path. I'm going to make damn yeah. sure that I've got my own my own get out. So when they suggest this one, yeah. he's, he smells a rat very quickly. Yeah. Um, so good. Because he's, you know, uh, mm. and then of course he has to go go along with it with his with his dumb self. But you know, mm. he himself is like, no, 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 I'm just going to fix X, Y, and Z so I can get out of that trap. <clears throat> exactly yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. If you wanted a couple of um, visual recommendations at the moment, things that gave me a real Stephen King vibe. Uh, from them um, one and I might be a bit behind the curve on this but if you haven't seen it do check it out Midnight Mass <gasps> yes yes see there's the endorsement oh. uh. Midnight Mass I was late yeah. to the party on this one but it has a real Stephen King vibe to it incredible I'm yeah. so glad you watched it yes you guys got to see it really enjoyed that um, it's out uh, it's fairly new at the moment so I'm not <laughs> that late to the party with this one Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities Ooh, it's creepy. I've seen one episode. I barely they're, uh, survived, <laughs> but oh, they're great. Yeah. I've only done I've only done two, but it's a bit. It, it's a. It's like it's a, like a nightmares and dreamscapes or a, or, yeah. or night shift separate separate stories, um, but each one being different and very creepy and oh, really really good. Um, and run. This was a film a couple of years ago with Sarah Paulson. Um, 
and Kira Allen. Okay. And in fact, at one point, if you listen out very carefully, um, the town of Derry in Maine is mentioned. <gasps> oh my goodness. <laughs> Brilliant. Midnight um, Mass, Cabinet of Curiosities and Run. Those run. are the, uh, yeah, the recommendations. What about you, Kim? Anything that, uh, aside from Billy Summers, has been rocking your world recently? Oh, my gosh. Well, um, Riverdale. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, oh my goodness, King fans, there are so many Easter eggs. For example, the local prison is called Shankshaw, rather than, like, you guys. The, I see what they did there. <laughs> the, the high school musical is Carrie. Like, there's uh. so many, like, the writers were, were, they're huge King fans, you can tell. It is for teenagers absolutely but uh beautiful costumes really fun little murder mystery it's it's very nancy drew it's really nostalgic i had a ton of fun it's light-hearted if anybody's feeling like a little bit heavy with true crime or winter yeah. season this is just light-hearted fun uh what else has been tremendous i really like the sandman Mm -hmm. uh the, yeah, the adaptation the yeah that's been lovely i'm a huge fan of neil gaiman and that graphic novel series yeah. Yeah. and we just finished this is the same director of midnight mass called mm -hmm. the midnight club ah. and so it's another mike flanagan film about terminally ill teenagers that are mm -hmm. in a hospice it's very gothic called mm -hmm. Break cliff or bright cliff and there's mm -hmm. at the stroke of midnight they gather together to tell stories and there's spooky stories and there's mm -hmm. a little ghost thing in the, it's so good guys it's oh, really lovely. charming and lots of king stuff in there yeah. one of the students pulls out a copy of the gunslinger <laughs> um another is reading the dead zone in in his college dorm room <laughs> so it's so great it's so rewarding for king fans i think you guys will like it yeah, and Mike Flanagan, yeah, knows his way, uh, knows his way around King pretty well. Oh gosh, yeah. Someday he'll do the Dark Tower for us. Yes, feel and it. do it justice, do it I properly. Think so. <laughs> I think so. But yeah, Billy Summers, I, I thank you both so much for allowing me to chat about this oh. novel with you because I did a, almost two hours on my show and I felt like I never scratched the surface at all. So this just fills my heart with such joy to give life to this incredible story. It's a newer King one. I want people to read it. We know that the King fans are really sort of partial to the spooky stuff and to the powerhouse hitters, but this one, I think we need to work really hard to make it mainstream. We gotta really get the readers on this one. I think it's powerful and important. So thank you both so much. Well, Kim, it's been our absolute pleasure. Thank you for just classing up the joint here, uh, <laughs> taking it to another level. And uh, for those listeners that are going, oh, my God, right, we want more Kim C. Where could they find your brilliant episode on, on Billy and, and all your other brilliant episodes? Where, where could they find you? 
please head to wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find me on Audible. That just happened recently. So that was cool. very cool. Yeah. Very nice. So if you're an Audible subscriber, you can type in the year of underrated Stephen King. You can find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the places as well as Anchor. We're everywhere. And Billy Summers is pretty hot off the presses. I am currently reading Blaze for the first time. We're doing a Richard Bachman, so I'm tapping into that uh, Steinbeck Mice and Men a little bit. So I, it's a perfect November book. So that's what I'm working on now. But it's been an emotional couple books. I did Wizard and Glass <laughs> in three parts and Billy. So I'm very comfortable dabbing my tears these <laughs> these past few months. So it's been um, it's been a weepy one, but that's okay. Yeah. So, yeah, you can also write me at underratedsk at gmail. You could say hi anytime. I am a teacher always grading papers, so I will write you back very quickly. <laughs> Amazing. So, Kim C, the lady that can make Sean Penn smile. I mean, God, yeah, yeah. Powerful, mean, powerful. Please. Yeah. Kim, it has just been such a joy to have, have you with us. And, uh, and Sai, I mean, wow. I mean... Where, where do we go from here, my friend? You know, well, are we are we gonna do? I mean, we're gonna be bereft <laughs> after this every we time. Uh, you know, we're gonna come to talking about something, and we're just gonna sort of hit a bit of a wall, and we'll we'll just stop and 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 think to ourselves, what would Kim C say at this point? I know damn well <laughs> she'd throw something into the conversation that would inspire and ignite us, but I, I'm not here. <laughs> I'll be back in a in a New York minute anytime. We're approaching that time where it was about 12 months ago when we were like, right, what are we going to do in 2022? And of course, we ended up doing our our year of looking at it through the five parts of the book, through uh, our interview with Stephen Weber for the audio book and through the films and the miniseries. Um, so rest assured, uh, dear listeners, we are going to have lots of plans and plots hatching for how we uh, how we hit 2023 running. Because, uh, as we said, with Stephen King, we barely scratched the surface. Um, so thank you for listening to this really special episode. Thank you so much for Kim. See, do check out the year of underrated Stephen King. It's absolutely amazing. And we can't wait to see you. Um, and if you like what you've heard, then there's about 40 king size episodes currently residing wherever you may pod. The link is in our bio as well on King Size Pod on Instagram. Please write, drop us a line, get involved. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And thank you for being the best community in the world. You got one more impression for the road, Si? This is one I gave to Matt ages ago um, when he was... Obviously, he hadn't listened to the Year of the Underrated Stephen King podcast. He was listening <laughs> to a couple of podcasts um, and was a bit sort of uninspired. Um, and um, I tried to encourage him to go and listen to Stephen King interviews instead. And the quote that jumped to mind came from The Untouchables when um, Malone says, if you're afraid of getting a rotten apple, don't go to the battle, get it off the tree. King Size, 
was written and presented by Matt Robinson and Simon Balkan. Edited and produced by Matt Robinson. Music, Storm Coming by Last Picture Show, available on Spotify. Find us on Instagram at KingSizePodcast. If you like what you hear, please drop us a review and subscribe to the show.